it, it does kind of feel like uh, like I just discovered Phil's in San Francisco once last year, and I'm probably never going to go there again. Uh, guess what, though? I looked on the map, and there is a Phil Z within a few blocks of uh, the San Jose Convention Center. Oh, yeah. All right. Uh, then in that case, we're going to be going there a lot. It's like not like across the street, but it's probably about as close as the one, uh, just a couple blocks. That was a, that was a good place. That's I, I, I do wonder how different the culture of San Jose. I've never been to San Jose. Like I, I've been only a, only a handful of times in Silicon Valley at all. And uh, and so San Jose is is even less familiar to me than the rest of it. And uh, but you've you've gone to a couple events here and there, right? Yeah, including the only time I ever set foot in uh, in San Jose was the 2012 uh, October event. So it was a, the one a month after the big iPhone event. They did uh, iPads, and I think that was when the current form factor of the iMac debuted with the thin side. Not yet Retina, of course. Yeah, uh, and was the last public um, event Apple held while Scott Forstall was was uh, an executive. Yeah, that was that was. I remember still. I still remember like the day that that he was officially announced as being out. We were actually Tiff and I were on vacation in Seattle. And I was like in this weird clothing store with her, like killing time on my phone. And I'm trying to catch up on what the heck just happened. Everyone was exploding about it. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, no. I, so speaking of our of our uh, IMAX, though, I have a bone to pick with you okay. about because I, I believe that that you and I have the same uh, 2014 first gen 5K IMAX. Correct. Does yours have problems with image retention? No. You're lucky. Oh, either that or <laughs> apparently I don't see it. It's possible that maybe I, you know, maybe if my eyes were what they used to be, I would see it. But it doesn't seem well, like here's it does. here's why here's why you would see it in particular, uh, because the the most common place I see it this this just started happening <laughs> over the last few months, and uh, and it's <laughs> I know exactly it, what you're gonna say. Yeah, exactly. It just started happening over the last few months, and, and it's getting worse quickly. Um, and so what happens is, I'm not talking about burn-in, like on plasma TVs, where like you have a, something burned in forever. I'm talking about LCD image retention, where basically you you kind of see like the ghost image of what was there before for a few minutes, and then it, it, it like fades over like a minute or two. So like if you have something high contrast up for five or ten minutes, say. So for instance, when you're podcasting and you have like a couple windows up that might have like text notes or the Skype window or whatever else and then you go to your web browser and you load a dark gray website then you will see the shadows of your formerly in those spots black and white windows uh you will see those very clearly against the gray background of the website you're looking at yeah so for a five almost always gets me for a five two five a exactly i on my previous display uh, and it was ancient. I, I, I used to talk about it on the podcast, but before getting this, this, this 5k iMac, what was that? Like two and a half years ago now, I guess. Yeah. Something that like that. Right? Yeah. I was using a 20 inch Apple cinema display, not 24 inch, 20 inch from, oh geez, must be like 2000 or 2002 or something. I mean, I don't know. It was really, maybe it wasn't quite that old, but it was really pretty old. Uh, and, I was sort of in a Syracuse situation where I it was long past the point where I could have easily afforded to replace it. Um, and there were all sorts of good options I could have bought, but I was sort of hoping for something retina forever and ever and ever. 
And so I just kept putting it off. It's like, there's no way I'm spending a thousand dollars on an Apple, even no matter how, you know, I guess they were 30 inch for a while and then they went to 27 inch, but I just didn't feel like buying it not to have retina knowing that retina would come out any year now for years and years and years. So my, I was using, and that display after it must've been, it had to be at least 10 years old and I'd used it every day, had terrible image retention. And I know, I knew exactly where you were going because my website was the number one (laughs) culprit. It re- yeah, because like most, if you're dealing with other black and white windows, you don't really see it as often. But when you when you've had something black and white up for a while, and then you switch to a large expanse of gray, you see it very clearly. And you th- and my initial thought is always, I didn't realize that Safari was translucent. Yeah, that's exactly or what so, I thought. Like I, I always I always think it's like window translucency, and I'm like, oh, that's that's a weird design decision. Oh that, wait, that isn't a design decision. Right. When I first encountered it, that's exactly what I thought. Is I thought that maybe at some point I'd hit, hit some kind of weird. Uh, I I I diddled something in the terminal with defaults right. Right. Translucent. <laughs> you know, com com dot apples dot Safari slash you know or space translucency equals ninety one or something like that. <laughs> right. Exactly. Because that's exactly what uh, it looks like. Sorry about that. But now, now that now it's an iMac, so, and it's my main computer, and so it's like, but I'm like, I don't want to send this thing in for repair and not be with my main computer for like two weeks or however long it takes to get it actually fixed. Like two and a half years under know. even daily use seems like too soon, honestly. Yeah, I, I, I and I don't know, like, and then it's like. It, am I going to get one that has just the same problem? Are they? I'm always worried that they're not even going to believe me, or that, or that they're not going to replace it because they don't they they don't think it's bad enough. You know, yeah. even though I don't. I mean, there's not. I don't have a lot of basis for those feelings. That's just like it's such a it's such a hassle to send away my main computer for repair, yeah. especially because it's large. Like if it's a laptop, I could bring it to a genius bar and maybe have something faster. Maybe, but like because it's, it's such an ordeal to haul this thing yeah. anywhere and ship it anywhere. Ugh, I don't know. My my current plan is to just hope that they do something with like an iMac Pro or a Mac Pro sometime this year before my Apple Care runs out in October. And then I can just buy the new one, send this in for repair, and then when I get it back from repair, sell it. Oh, if you've got Apple Care, you should definitely do it. Although you have to be without it. But it's a pain. Yeah, it's like I I don't want to switch to my new crappy keyboard touch bar. Yeah. Like, you know I haven't bought it. I haven't bought Apple Care since 1991. The only reason I bought it on this, and and I'm with you most of the time. The only reason I bought it on this is that Apple Care, the the pricing is based on these tiers of what the product they apply to. A fourteen hundred dollar iMac has the same Apple Care cost as a forty five hundred dollar fully loaded one. Right, and so, and I was buying the very first generation of a new thing of the five K. And so I thought, you know what? It was only like two hundred bucks or something. It was it was not a lot of money for what was something like a forty four hundred dollar configuration because because I got it like really maxed out because it's my main computer. And I figured, you know what? At, at the ratio there pays off. I don't really get it for anything else, but in in cases where like you're buying a really maxed out config of something, it often does pay off because it's such a low relative cost. Yeah, I think we might have literally the same machine. I know I. Maxed, I think we do. Yeah. I know I maxed out the RAM thirty two gigs, and I would if yeah, I could have. If, if you six, have a terabyte, right. Uh, I think I have a terabyte drive because I don't know why I wouldn't yeah, have bought it because it's the only drive I keep attached most of the time. Yeah, I actually yeah. don't even know. <laughs> that's that's something. <laughs> wow. It's got to be a terabyte. I don't see how I would be able to f- function if it wasn't a terabyte. And then what I get, the 4 gigahertz Intel Core i7. Yep. Yeah, same thing. Yeah. Enjoy Enjoy your wonderful screen. You will know quickly if it ever becomes a problem. Yes, it is I, a terabyte I hear, drive, nine hundred ninety nine point three eight gigabytes. 
which is bullshit. Oh, you got ripped but... off. You didn't get the full terabyte. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I. Uh, oh boy, I. I just hope I get. I hope I can fix this easily. I don't know. ATP Tipster said that this was a problem with the with the one that we have, the 2014, but that they fixed it for the 2015 model, hmm. which is still the current model. Hmm. Um, although he also says they're going to have new ones like in March or whatever. Who knows? But yeah, we can get to March soon. We have to. We'll have to get to that. Um, did you? It, it kind of sounds like Apple's going to release like 15 things in March. Like that's that's kind of what like all the rumors are pointing to. Like four iPads. Uh, new iMacs, new 12-inch MacBook One, you know, like, and new watch bands, and who knows what on the software side, new, you know, new iPad stuff, maybe. I mean, there's, like, there is such a giant list of things that rumor people expect to be launched in March. It's kind of ridiculous. Did you see this? I don't I, I've been meaning to link to it, and I haven't, because uh, I forget why. I think it might be because I can't find the guy's name, and I keep... Uh, I, you and I ran into the same thing with somebody on Twitter recently, the guy OMD or something like that, or... Yeah, uh, yeah, who didn't... He, like, didn't have his name anywhere on any of his stuff, and we both wanted to link to him and name uh, him, you know, like, like right. it's nice, and... Right, like, yeah. I always... I, I think he didn't... He, he responded, and it sounded like he didn't want to be named. Like at least he, he gave only a first name or something. I heard like that. And he said something like he's building his brand on OMD or something like that. And it's it's harder for me to link to somebody who's anonymous. And I, the other thing that really gets me, and I hate to say it to to you, but it it's true. Is it was often it seems like I link a lot less frequently anymore to people who have Tumblr blogs, just anecdotally. But back when Tumblr was sort of at its peak as a blogging platform, like I'm not saying that Tumblr is is in decline, but I think it's in decline for the sort of blogging that I tend to link to it during Fireball. Um, an awful lot of, of Tumblr sites don't have the, the person's real name on it. It's just their their Tumblr yeah. handle. And that was always a big hit, hassle for me. And I'd have to like figure out what their Twitter name was and go to their Twitter page and find their real name from there. Like it didn't even seem like it was people who were trying to hide their name. It's just sort of idiomatic for Tumblr. But anyway, there's this site here. No, I mean, that was actually, that was actually designed that way. Like we, we meant it to mm. be like, as in, in the, like the same way that like one account could have multiple blogs. Right. And that the, there would be no way to tell unless you put it there which blogs belong to which account. Right, so, right. So like, it, it was very easy to create anonymous things that weren't tied to your main identity, and that was very much intentional. Because right. like everything else at the time, like, you know, keep in mind, like we made Tumblr as kind of a response to MySpace and Facebook and, and like the the big social networks that were that were big when we started it in 2006. And so Twitter wasn't really I mean, Twitter existed, but it wasn't big. Um, so it was really a response to those that were all about getting your real name and putting all your stuff out in public under your real name. And you know, it, a lot of people can't or won't uh, give their real name for a lot of the stuff they want to do online. And so you you enable a lot more. Like creativity and different types of uses, if you if you allow people to be anonymous, so that was kind of that was kind of like the ethos from the beginning of like you can make a different blog. It's no risk. It's not going to like you know look bad upon you. This is before all the hate crap that we have today. <laughs> today it might be a little bit different calculation there, uh, but back then you know most of the hate was confined to these fringe forums and stuff, and they weren't really on Tumblr. Um, I don't even know if they are now. I don't think they are. But regardless. Um, the idea of getting like an anonymous identity out there very, very easily uh, was quite a positive thing in 2006. Anyway, I just sent you the link. It's to a guy named Thomas Vershoren at vershoren.com. Um, he has a Twitter link, so I got his name from there. But anyway, he has an interesting speculation here that it, it, it's purely his guess. It doesn't see, he's not claiming any sort of sources. But what he's saying is that when Apple 
made standalone displays, they tend to sell them for a long time. The 27-inch LED display was on sale for three years. The 27-inch Thunderbolt display was on sale for five years. I guess they're still selling it, or did they? Do they? They still sell that, right? I don't even know. No, I mean, no, no. They discontinued right. like, uh, like a year and a half ago or something. So you can't even buy an outdated Apple display at this point. No, like I mean, you might be able to find somebody who has one in stock, but right, they, have, but they haven't sold them new for a while. Um, so here's his guess: is his guess is the that Apple didn't want to release a 5K standalone cinema display back in October when they did all the new MacBooks that could use them because they weren't yet ready to sell one with True Tone because they don't have True Tone in the iMac either. None of the desktop Macs do. And so, as he says here, his conclusion, if you were Apple, what would you choose to do? Release an, I, an Apple 5K cinema display in 2016 and then sell it for a few years unchanged without True Tone? Or push the LG display in 2016 as a stopgap and release an Apple 5K True Tone display sometime in 2017. So I, that's, is anybody who's still holding on to a thread of hope that Apple hasn't abandoned the standalone display game, which I would not bet on. I kind of suspect that they are done. But this, there's, a, there's a wee bit of sense here, in my opinion. I mean, so so the thing about like you know they they tend to have these displays that last for a certain amount of time. Throw that right out; doesn't matter, right? It doesn't it doesn't matter how long things have been out. Like five years. They, they, this is a very small sample size. Apple does not artificially hold things back simply because the last one is only three years old instead of four years old or whatever. Like that's that's it's this is too small of a correlation to matter, and that's not how they really work. I, I think the only question here is. Whether whether we believe that they would hold back this display and go through the kind of and assume the LG display was perfect, which it isn't, but assume the LG display was perfect, they still took a big PR hit in order to push that as the, as the solution and to have the idea out there floating unchallenged for months and still so far that they are out of this out of the display business. Yeah, but what if they had no choice? Is that more? What well, if but it, like, is that? Is that more likely than them wanting to save True Tone for the iMac? They don't sell them any iMacs. They sell a lot more laptops. It would not surprise me if, when the Thunderbolt display that they just re- the, when they discontinued recently, that one when it was new, it wouldn't surprise me if that outsold the iMac when it was new. It, it might it might not, but they sell a lot of laptops and they right. sell a lot of these displays for laptops for their laptops, and so I. I don't see them holding back something that their customers very clearly want, replacing a product that was incredibly out of date, only for the purpose of one of its really minor features, like jumping ahead of the iMac getting that same feature. It doesn't seem like that would be important enough to them to justify all the downsides of that strategy. What if the original plan, though, was like a year in advance or well over a year ago, if they had hoped to also have 5K iMacs at the end of 2016, too, with True Tone? And the whole thing just fell Maybe. apart. Maybe. It, it, that's plausible, but I it just the seems... Whole, I'm not saying how likely know. it is, but the whole thing seems plausible to me, that it's some sort of engineering slash supply chain screw-up, or you know, maybe screw-up is too harsh of a word, but something didn't go according to plan, and, and that's where they are. I don't know. I still love it. I brought it up the other week on this show, and it, there must be an awful lot of people who listen to my show who don't listen to ATP, because it's, I got so much... Like The best feedback I got was that the observation, we got so, I got so much email about 
ripping off Syracuse's observation from ATP, which I did credit him with, uh, that what does Apple <laughs> plan to do in their beautiful new campus? Stuff all of right. these, and it, which supposedly has a more open floor plan where you'll see more of the, your colleagues' desks. Are they going, <laughs> going to put one of these ugly LG monitors on every single one of these Johnny Ive designed desks? Like Johnny Ive is bothered. No, I mean, is like off in the woods, you know, nailing desks together <laughs> out of like wood that comes from one special brand of tree that grows in northern Italy or something, and they're going to put ugly LG monitors on all these desks. Uh, I mean, it, and that's that's also a good counter argument, but I think it's it's just as likely that you could just say, well, their their solution is just they're going to give most of their engineers and stuff Mac, like IMAX. Yeah. Like it, it 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 really does seem like, uh, and and again. This could be blown out of the water when Apple releases a brand new Mac Pro, iMac Pro, whatever it is in, in July. But I think that's very unlikely. I, I think if that was going to happen, we would have a lot more than casual speculation about it by now. Um, the fact that there's nothing in the pipeline to suggest that's happening makes me believe it's definitely not happening this year, if ever. Uh, and so I really do think it's very clear that we all have wishful thinking that goes in a different direction. But the reality is it's most likely that Apple really is out of the display business and the pro desktop business and the Mac mini business and is really just going to make the iMac and the MacBook Pro their only computers going forward. I've heard that, the, I think I figured if I've talked about this, I've heard that there is a new Mac Pro in the pipeline, but that it is, it sounds ridiculous, but that it's effectively like in a slot where there's so many other machines, whether they're Macs or other things that are getting testing and like validation engineering mm -hmm. uh, resources ahead of it, that there's no way it's going to ship by WWDC, <laughs> which seems ridiculous, but well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, even if they, I mean, here's the thing. Most, most people who feel bad about Apple because of the lack of Mac pro updates at all, they don't necessarily need it to ship at WDC. I think what would what would calm a lot of fears, my own included, would just be like an acknowledgement mm -hmm. and confirmation that something else is coming. Like right. just confirmation, even if it's one of like one of their like kind of BSE replies to the press, like you know, keep an eye out in this space soon, whatever else, like something. And Tim Cook's like little Q and A response for that internal bulletin board thing a few months back, that wasn't enough. That that was actually in fact making things worse, I think, by kind of implying that the iMac was gonna be gonna be it going forward. Um I, I that's all we really want here. But again, I, I, I just I it's what I want to be true. I I want there to be a new Mac Pro of some sort. And if it's if it's shaped like an iMac and it has a built-in 5K screen and it just has a Xeon processor in it with like a thicker back for a bigger heatsink, that's fine. I'll take that. That actually sounds kind of nice to me. Yeah. It wouldn't be as ideal as standalone because then I'm, I'd have the same problem I have now when it gets image retention and I have to send the whole thing in. But I'd take it. It's better than nothing. That'd, that'd be great. Yeah, um, and it leads to, it leads I, to I, weird, leads to weird situations. I mean, it's, again, better than nothing if they made an iMac Pro and put a, somehow put a Xeon in there and solve the, the heat problems that that would you know I, I say that's technically possible um the biggest well i and I, I think i think it's possible although i talking to atp tipster about this a little bit in our chat uh, a few weeks ago he pointed out that the logic board in the imac faces the wrong way to really make that happen like i think the cpu faces towards you when you're sitting at it hmm. and to 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 drastically improve the heat capacity to be able to cool like a high-powered Xeon chip to make it more Mac Pro class processing power, you'd need to flip the whole logic board around, which is kind of be like a redesign uh, on the level of a whole new iMac generation. So the question is, like, would Apple really do that for this 
you know, relatively low volume. I mean, I guess they designed a whole case before, but like, it sure does seem like they couldn't possibly care less about keeping the Mac Pro updated in any reasonable fashion. And so it, it, it really, it, it's a pretty big question whether they would basically redesign the entire iMac enclosure and a whole new computer just for this line that they haven't given two craps about for three years. It's a real mystery. <laughs> I think it's possible. I think the iMac Pro is is possible, or that they'll sell it as a Pro somehow. I don't know, but I I hope I I wish for it to be true, but I just don't see it. Right. But I, there's got to be a reason why they don't just stop selling the Mac Pros. There's some contingent within the company that's clearly hoping for new Mac Pros. Otherwise, they, it would be it would be easier. It would be easier, and they'd be, look less foolish if they had canceled the Mac Pro like at last WWDC. If they had just said, "Hey, these new That's iMacs true. are so great that you know it, it's all that you know the time for the standalone is gone." Whatever it would, you know, people would disagree, obviously, and there'd be people who'd be heartbroken, and there'd be people who are furious. But at least Apple wouldn't look foolish, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, because it it really looks bad now. Like it really like the situation now is is kind of egregiously bad. <laughs> It's it's kind of embarrassing. It's hard to believe. It's really kind of hard to believe how old it is. It really is. And still my biggest regret is that I didn't ask Schiller about it on stage last year. And I had the card. I had it, I had it on a card. And I did not. Some, some people understand, but I, it, it's so hard to keep that thing going live. And it's... It was. It's my one and only regret from that whole show. The the year before when Schiller was on the first time, I had way more regrets afterwards, and I felt like my my self criticism really helped, and I did a better job last year. But my one, my, my one. Oh, I can't believe it! And now I, look at this. We're already at the point where <laughs> WWDC has been announced again, and it still hasn't been answered. And like the one reason why I put it at a lower priority at first, and then towards the end when I was wrapping up, I was like flipping through the cards I had left, and it just didn't. I didn't see that one, which I, you know, I might have as like a last question. But the reason I originally had it lower in the stack was I thought, well, they got to do something in September, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I can get them on the record now, but it's only for the next, you know, two, two, three months. So anyway, I don't know. Um, well, and it's you know it's hard. Like when you're in a situation like like what you're doing with the with these you know executive interviews, like it's hard. You know, and we got a little bit of this, a little bit of this from when ATP uh, interviewed um, Chris Lat- Latner a few weeks ago, which was great. And by uh, the way. like and like we had a couple people ask us afterwards, like on Twitter and email and stuff, like why didn't you ask him about the Mac Pro? <laughs> oh, like, you can't. Okay, that's, that's... <laughs> yeah. It's like a even if he knew about Mac Pro stuff. You, you know, you're not going to answer that. <laughs> and B, the guy who writes the compiler probably has no clue about what the Mac Pro hardware team is doing and what might or might not be released in that department. Like, it's a big company. Like, they, And so, like, anyway, your context, like, interviewing Schiller on stage, like, it's tough to know whether you should bust out a question like that, which is slightly antagonizing and really puts him on the spot. Because, um, like... There's a very good chance that you would just get like a non-answer, you know, just like a nice PR-friendly non-answer, kind of like you know, kind of like Tim Cook's post, like you know, we really love desktops, we have great desktops coming in the future, you know, like stuff like that, and that's that's not very helpful. And then you've just like shifted the tone of the interview 
in a way that now they are on edge or yeah, are less likely to go to you in the future. So it's it's a tricky balance. I, and I, so I don't I don't blame you for for not asking that. No, last but it year. wasn't because I, I thought would it was blame an, you for not asking it this year. Yeah, I, this year it's got it's, it would <laughs> have to. This year's happen. gonna be the first question you ask. Well, yeah, but watch, I'll end up uh, end up getting uh, you know. I don't know. Somebody has nothing to do with Mac hardware or something like that. Uh, <laughs> you can get Chris Latner. Right. Like all of a sudden Schiller doesn't return my calls, you know, it's yeah. Right. <laughs> um, no, I, I would have, cause there's ways to ask it. And I feel like that's something that I, it, you know, maybe why I've gotten to this position where I can do this is where I can ask the question, but do it in a way that's not confrontational. You know, I mean the framing I would have used is look, this audience in particular, uh, is largely comprised of people who use Xcode, which is one of the apps where it, you know, extra every bit of CPU power can really help at times, you know, and uh, you oh know, yeah, and you know we're we're in this transition moving towards from Objective C to Swift, and Swift, I, I think it's fair to say, is more taxing on the comp- on the CPU than Objective C. It seems like the Swift compilers, you know, you can you can write Swift code that takes a lot longer to compile but whatever it certainly isn't easy to compile um and there's a just a general sentiment that apple's apple's priorities for pro hardware in general are lower than they used to be you know the mac pro is i don't whatever it was 900 days old at this time uh after an incredibly splashy debut you know what the heck is going on here I don't think that would is like making you know it's not like I'm putting him on the spot and it's he's e- he can easily say and maybe that's all he would have said is hey you know we we love you guys we got you but you know I can you know you know I can't talk about future stuff I you know right. I don't have anything yeah. to say about it and then that's the end of it it's you know so it's possible but at least I would have asked yeah uh, anyway. There's always there's always future executive podcast interviews live at WBC. Right. I loved the Latner <laughs> interview, by the way. I don't. I, it was really, and especially for a show that uh, almost never does interviews. I mean, you guys never. I, I, I thought there was one a long time ago, or no? I guess you guys swapped. You guys swapped with another show. Yeah, like, we had John trade spots with Christina Warren right. uh, for one episode, which actually turned out really nice. But it wasn't really an interview show. It was right. just like she just right. was another host on our show for that episode. Right. You know? I thought that for a show that has an established rhythm between the three of you, um, in which really none of it is really interview style, and there's an incredible comfort level between your personalities, to have somebody new on and do a, a three-way interview where each, all three of you asked good questions. Um, I thought it was really impressive because that's hard Thank to you. do because it was a really different show. Yeah. It's like all of a sudden, instead of driving a car, you're, you're riding bicycles or something. <laughs> yeah. It, it was a lot of fun though. And, and Chris was, you know, he made it easy on us. Like he wasn't like a prima donna about anything and, you know, just really easy to work with and yeah. super nice guy. That was, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. He is, it's, you know, it, it's, you know, it's obviously not true from top to bottom, but it is generally true that Apple tends to attract very nice people. There are, yeah, um, you know, uh, I mean, Federighi's a great example where, uh, you know, I don't know what he's like in real personal life, but, you know, like backstage and stuff like that. And when you see him at WWDC and and people come up and, and you know, just random attendees are like, hey, can I get a selfie or whatever? He stops and talks for, you know, five minutes with them and asks what they're doing. He he, he comes across like talking to a group of five, you know, 
first time at WWDC, WWDC attendees wearing the WWDC jacket, he comes across exactly with the same demeanor that he has on stage. So like that affection that people seem to have for him, it's it's true. That seems to be his personality. And Latner is exactly that type of personality. He's he's you know just just a nice guy. Yeah. Did I ever did I tell you about last year WWDC when I visited uh, Apple's and Facebook's campuses in the same day? Yeah, it all sort of blurs together. I remember you doing it, but I don't remember what the details. It was were. really interesting. Like so, you know, and in in both cases, like we, you know, the me and and uh, Casey and a couple other friends, like we just had like we had, we had like a friend at each company that that wanted to like just you know give us like quick tour, let us in and show us around, stuff like that. And Apple, I only saw like, you know, the, 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 you know, center courtyard and the, and Cafe Max, because, you know, you can't bring people in, right. into the buildings really there. Um, Frowned but, upon. Yeah, exactly. So I didn't see, I didn't see like any actual offices, but I, I was able to see like the courtyard and hang out and have lunch with everybody there. And, and we had lunch with something like 15 people at this giant table. And so I got to meet a lot of people there and, hang out for a good amount of time and they have pretty good coffee at apple even yep. at cafe max i gotta say and uh and you know kind of get a feel for like the vibe of the campus even though i didn't see any offices and then like a couple hours later we went to facebook and i had, I had never been to either of these campuses before like i had been to the apple uh retail store but i'd never gone like through the doors into the courtyard um and I'm actually not sure I was allowed to they have some kind of weird rules about bloggers but i think i'm just under like I'm, I'm not really officially Apple press in any capacity. Right. I never have been, and so I think that's why it wasn't a problem that I was there. Because like, like I, like I had a friend who tried to go who was Apple press and was not allowed in. Uh, so <laughs> that was that was interesting. But anyway, um, so th- seeing Apple and then seeing Facebook could not have been two more different company culture and environments, at least visibly from these brief visits I did, and. Facebook, I just felt horrible the whole time I was there. Like I felt kind of creeped out and intimidated by just how bizarre and kind of intense, high energy but not high positive energy uh, it seemed to be. Like just really like I don't know. It's hard to explain. I I really did. I really got a very bad feeling from Facebook. A combination of like, how does anybody get any work done here? And where are the adults? Hmm. And and it it just didn't feel good. It felt like a dysfunctional workaholic culture that was hard to get any real work done in, and in an environment that's kind of weirdly like like trapped in youth forever bizarro college fantasy world. And then Apple was so like calm and adult and just like nicely like low key. The people there were just like nice and calm, and it it kind of felt like oh, this is where the adults work. Like this, <laughs> this is like where people come to actually do serious work, and it was a much it, it just whatever the environment actually is. I'm I'm you know again because I've never worked at these companies and didn't even go inside the offices at Apple. It's hard for me to really say this, but it just felt like the the little tiny windows into these cultures I saw really just seemed like Apple was the place where like the nice mature adults go to work. Hmm. I, I I could see that. I, I don't know. It, you, it it definitely seems like people who go to Apple. It, I mean, it's you know, company cultures attract like minded people, you know. But it does seem to me like in general, like when I've been there, um, people know how to turn it off, and you know that that when you're going to lunch and they're going to have lunch with a friend, they're 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 just having lunch with a friend, you know. Right. Yeah. Get back up to speed when they get back to work or whatever. I mean, I tell you one thing. Like I, 
I don't hear a lot of stories about Facebook and Apple stealing talent from each other. Um, and maybe that's because I don't really pay attention. But I, I tell you one thing, seeing both those places, I cannot imagine that anybody who works for one would want to work for the other in either direction. Hmm. Like, I, I don't think they're competing for the same people at all. Yeah, I th- I've never really heard that either. I mean, and obviously at a certain level, there's probably some like maybe at like a sysadmins or something like that. But and you know what? There was that one team at Facebook that was largely poached from Apple, but now they're all dispersed, right? They're gone. The Mike Mattis. All the designers. The, yeah, they, yeah, they bought a bunch of designers for a while and then right. just slowly eroded their sanity until they all quit. Right. And they built a very Apple-like, beautiful uh, system and custom tools to support it with Facebook paper or whatever they – whether it was just paper or Facebook paper. Whatever, whatever <laughs> one of the names they stole. Yeah, it, uh, it's fine. Well, but you know what I mean. I, it's it, – it it's it's a tough call because the paper app was the other paper app the one that you draw on was there first but it is it's the risk you take when you pick yeah. a regular a plain word as your app name you know it's yeah, like, it seemed like for a while there like facebook was just gobbling up as much design talent as they yeah. could at about the same time that google was gobbling up as much email talent as they could and it seems like both of those have just kind of fizzled and faded over the last year or so i haven't yeah. heard anything about them recently i think in broad terms what happened was that there was a period where zuckerberg i think it coincides with because uh, you know if there's one i don't i don't get facebook i've never signed up for it uh, and so i'm not I, I, it, it does feel foreign to me. It feels like studying a foreign country. But from my observations, it, it is clear. It, it, I, I don't think there can be any question that Zuckerberg has a, a tremendous gift for changing his mind. Um, people often said that about Steve Jobs. Uh, Tim Cook has often, when he talks about working with Steve Jobs, like he usually just talks about him on a personal level. But if you can get him talking about working, his, you know, Tim Cook tells stories about his absolutely amazing ability to change his mind. And but, the, you know, the Steve Jobs style is that when he comes in with his mind change, he acts as though it was his, his opinion all along. <laughs> um, and I think Bill Gates had some of that too, right? Like when Bill Gates famously. That, like Microsoft was building this early '90s strategy to sort of do their own custom stuff for connecting computers to each other, and then all of a sudden, you know, Gates writes like a ten-page manifesto that we got to get on this internet thing, and all of a sudden, you know, I mean, how long did it take for for Explorer to to decimate Netscape? Didn't take long. Um, yeah, but at the same time, then we got active desktop. So I'm I don't know if that it was, was a net but I'm win. Just, I'm not saying that it was seamlessly executed. I'm just saying, no, he did change his mind. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it, it's, you know, and the broad strokes, Facebook was a, a website. It was a website you went to and you did all these things. And the iPhone came out and an awful lot of products that were popular websites in 2007 um, in the iPhone era just were nowhere did weren't getting the engagement that things that could be done as a native app got and oh yeah uh i mean not to go too far off into the weeds but one reason is that an awful lot of websites were built i don't think this is true anymore because mobile is i don't think anybody overlooks it but that the back end of the website was inextricably tied to the front end of the website and instead of having everything go through nice apis even the front end of the website so that you could make clients for other devices like a native mac client or and and people say well forget it you don't need a native mac or windows client we'll just go through the web browser and for a lot of things for a lot of years that was fine but then with the phone that wasn't good enough and facebook had an app that was largely just a front end for html and javascript and then they seemed to get it 
and it's you know from Zuckerberg on down that no, we should do this as, with as much native stuff as we can. We should this app is important. This is more important than our website. Uh, and that's around when he hired all those designers. And I think there yeah, was sort true. of a I think there was sort of a look. Apple's you know Apple's the company to look at. They they value a plus design talent. Maybe we should too. And then I think in the intervening years. Facebook realized that that wasn't really that important to them. That the native part was, yeah. but the design I, caliber wasn't. Or rather, I, I think they it it seemed like there was a lot of trouble. You know, like they were able to get the talent, but just you know by applying sheer force of will and lots of money, they were able to get the talent. But then the question is, well, what do you have all these great, all these incredibly talented people do at Facebook? And that was it, it. Seemed like they had a harder time having a good answer to that question and maintaining that over time. Yeah. Um, but who knows? Now, it's, it's hard to keep good people interested in working for a giant established product. You know, like yeah. Apple has this problem too. Like yeah. it's really like once you have something that's big and successful and boring, like Facebook or the iPhone, it's hard to get people interested in working on that. Who the same kind of people who would make something like that because they want to go make something else. Yeah, I know Mike Mattis a little bit. Uh, and I haven't spoken to him much since he left Facebook. So, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm just sort of speculating here. But I know from a couple of the people on the team that they were used to being the A team at the company. You know, like Mattis was, I think, I know he designed a whole bunch of stuff in the original iPhone, but like, I think he literally did like the actual pixels for the slide to unlock. You know, like that's, you know, that, that's, that's, and, if you're like the person who designs both the visuals and the interaction for a thing, doing slide to unlock is pretty, pretty big. Cause I mean, I remember Steve jobs actually demoed it like three times. He was like, that's so oh, yeah. cool. I'm going to do it again. He like locked the phone and did it again. Yep. So like when you are designing the feature that Steve jobs decides, I'm just going to do this three or four times on stage because it's, I just love it so much. And then to go to at Facebook and you're not designing, you're not designing the app that's in front of a billion users. You're designing the app that's in front of like one tenth of 1% of the users who care more about how things look than the, the regular Facebook experience. I, I just think it's hard to get excited about that. Yeah. Um, I'll take a break. Let's take a break. I'm going to thank our first sponsor. It's our good friends at audible. You guys know audible audible is where you go to get uh, just about anything and everything audio related. I used to think of it as a place you go to get audiobooks. And it's true, they have more audiobooks than anybody. But they have so much more than audiobooks now. You go there, you sign up for an account, and you can get all sorts of stuff. They have news, daily news shows, they have comedy shows, all of this stuff. And a lot of this stuff is original to Audible. If you want to listen to it, Audible has it. Listen to audiobooks from virtually every genre, anytime, anywhere. They have a great listen guarantee. So if you get an audio book and you start listening to it and it's like putting you to sleep, uh, you could just like give it back to them and they'll, you get get like a different book. Like that's how confident they are. They, they just you're not going to get bored. You're just going to fill up your every minute where you need to listen to something to not be bored. You can fill it up with stuff from Audible. And I've always said I think this is one of the greatest uh, advertising opportunities ever. Why do they sponsor podcasts? Because they know that everybody who's listening to me tell you about Audible is somebody who listens to spoken word content by definition. So if you're listening to this and you feel like you've got gaps in your 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 life where you need more podcasts uh, or things like podcasts, go to Audible. Sign up. Go to audible.com slash talk show. 
No the, just talk show. And no, no, you came here and you get a free 30-day trial. 30 days where you can just listen to whatever you want. Audible.com slash talk show. I think I wrote that script. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, I was telling, I forget who I was talking to. The, I forget if it was on air or not, but uh, Bill Simmons, I, I've been listening to him. The football season I was listening. He does a sports thing. He does a thing called The Ringer. <laughs> Thank uh, you. <laughs> uh, very popular. You probably see it. It's probably pretty high up in Overcast. Oh, that'd be interesting to see if it was actually all that high up in Overcast, because maybe Overcast skews towards uh, non-sports stuff. Maybe like sports stuff is a little bit more. I don't know. It'd be interesting. It, to know. it, it does go. It it does pretty well in Overcast. It is not as high as tech shows and like the really popular, you know, NPR style storytelling shows like This American Life, though. I think it was Ben Thompson and I who were talking about. It. I forget if it was on the show or off. But the gist of it is that when when uh, Bill Simmons first started doing sponsor reads on his show. He was awful at it, as was I. Like when I first split off uh, and started doing this show on my own, <laughs> just rough. brutal. I mean, like maybe the shows were, uh, maybe they were okay, but the the sponsor reads were just brutal. You just, it, I don't know why. It's hard. It's a hard thing to do. You get, you get the hang of it eventually. It took you maybe a couple of months, and then you, then you were pretty good. At it. Yeah, but it's uh, but Simmons is doing. Simmons is actually taking it to a new level. He was. I, I think I would venture to say he was worse than me at the beginning, and now he's better than anybody I've. Uh, I've ever seen. He's he's like in Howard Stern territory at being able to do it. Uh, because sometimes when I listen to Stern anymore, it almost seems like when Stern does one that, where he does the read, he's he's phoning. It's you could tell he's phoning it in. Whereas Simmons does it, and he's got a real tight script, and it seems like he's trying to literally stick it to thirty seconds, get in and out, uh, and he really starts talking faster, uh, and it it just alleviates. It does just completely alleviate any urge I have to skip ahead. I tend not to. Interesting. I tend not to skip ahead on sponsor reads on podcasts simply because I, I you know, I know some people do, and if you do, you know, th- that's why the feature's there. It's okay. It's my job to try to make it as interesting. We've you and I have talked about this before. It's my job to try to make it so mm-hmm. interesting that you don't want to skip. But when I'm listening to podcasts, I tend not to skip because I want to listen. I, I'm curious at a at a professional level. How is this person going to keep me interested? Um, yeah, I, I often will will listen to other people who are doing reads for the same sponsors that I have, just to to hear like you know how are you doing this read, you know, and, and like yeah. maybe maybe there's something I can learn and do better in my reads for the same people from the way you're doing this read. Yeah. Uh, so what else we got? We got a lot to talk about. We got to hurry up. <laughs> we're really good at that. Yeah. So we got the we how about WWDC moving. Yeah, this- it's uh, it's cool. I mean. I don't know anything about San Jose, so it's going to be interesting. We talked a little bit about that. I I, I was completely surprised by this. I, I really, I, this just wasn't even on my radar. But I kind of, every, you know, once it happened, it was an initial shock. And then I thought, oh, shit, what am I going to do about my live show? Uh, you know, of course, my thoughts turned to myself immediately. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, everyone else's did too. Everyone else is like, oh, how can I fly there? Is our yeah. hotels expensive? I mean, everyone's thinking the same general stuff. Um, you know, no, most, most of the people aren't thinking, where can I host my live podcast? But you know. it just never occurred to me that they would do this though. Like uh, it, it, I guess the rough thinking was, and we've all had this, you know, people who go regularly that San Francisco is not great. The, the, in particular, I mean, there are parts of San Francisco that are absolutely gorgeous, but South of market where Moscone is, is not great. I don't hate it. Some people really hate it. Some people, uh, you know, it is what it is, but it is sort of the touristy, hotel-y, uh, 
Maybe touristy is wrong, but it's you it's know. kind of like the worst of San Francisco. It's like the, the 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 area that we see when we go to WBDC is is a terrible image of the city as a whole. Well, and then it's not too far from Union Square though, and Union Square is nicer, but Union Square is just high end retail. It's not, yeah. you know, what I mean, like, what are, you, what are you supposed to do? Go shopping for jewelry and stuff like that. You know, it's it's okay, but it is what it is. But the fact is that Apple, you know, we'd say, well, what could they do different? Well, there's no other facility with five thousand people, and then we, you know, we would just say, well, it used to be in San Jose, but they moved out of San Jose for a reason, and uh, there's nothing else, and they're not going to go further away because it's already a, a major stress on Apple to get a thousand engineers you know, from the South Bay area to San Francisco for labs and to just hang out and do stuff and still get work done. Um, and I, for one, had just completely overlooked the, well, they could move back to San Jose angle for years. It just never really, I never even really gave it serious thought. But then once they said, yeah, here's what we're doing, I could totally see the logic of it. And it seems like a very Apple-like move. I mean, really, it, it makes a ton of sense logistically, too. I mean, not only is it closer to them, but like, San Francisco is a dense, competitive, very expensive city. There's a reason why you don't see a lot of tech conferences in Manhattan. Right. It's because if you put on a tech conference in Manhattan, the space that you hold it in is going to be extraordinarily expensive. All the logistics, getting the food in there, getting it, like all the equipment, that's all going to be extraordinarily expensive. And then for the attendees, they're going to have to pay ridiculous hotel prices because they're going to this major city that is itself a massive tourist destination. And so it's very unappealing to hold a major conference in New York City unless it really needs to be specifically in new york city for some reason yeah so wbc could be anywhere like for the attend as far as far as the attendees are concerned it doesn't matter where it is you're going to see talks and labs and stuff and that could be in any conference center in any city in america it doesn't have to you you, you don't have to be paying the extreme premium and dealing with all the all the logistical challenges and downsides of being in a massive tourist expensive dense city yeah just to go watch some some talks and go to labs and either you already have friends and colleagues who you will also be there and you'll see them and it doesn't matter where you are or even if you don't even if you're like a first timer if you're you're new you're going to be surrounded by like-minded individuals and it's not hard to make friends or even even just temporary friends while while sitting at a bar or something like that you're very you know could start talking about Xcode, and all of a sudden, you know, you're not bored, uh, right? I mean, like, if if anything, the city's kind of wasted on you yeah. because if you're if you're attending the conference, you don't really have time to go out and explore much of the city. Like for the most part, you're get, you're waking up, you're trying to get to that nine a.m. session in the morning. You're you're in sessions and stuff all day. You might have a little hour for lunch, but you can't go that far. And then you back, and then like five o'clock rolls around, and you just want to like go to the hotel bar with your friends, have a couple of drinks, and like that's. You know, we go to dinner, and that's the night. Like yeah. you can do that anywhere. You're not seeing the whole city. Like yeah. it, it doesn't really make sense. I mean, like like one of my favorite conference venues I've ever been to uh, is is where Ool has been held the last couple of years uh, in Killarney, Ireland, in this hotel called the Europe. Uh, and it's like it's it's very very remote location. And the hotel itself, you've been there. You know, have you been there actually? I don't think so. I don't. Uh... Yeah, because you missed the. Yeah. Anyway. It, it's awesome. Um, it, it depends it's how many years remote. in a row they've been at the same one. I was at one that was at a remote location, but I think I think they've switched to a different remote location. 
yeah, this this is I, I believe this is their third one that they're about to do mm-hmm. next month. Uh, I'm going. I, I recommend it. Uh, anyway, so it's you know it's just like this one giant hotel venue, kind of in the middle of nowhere. It's beautiful, but like you're all kind of self-enclosed there. There, you, there is. I mean, there is a, a nearby city of Killarney, but like you don't really. The, the attendees don't really have to go there. Like you're, you're all on premises, and you're surrounded by all the people that are there for your event. And so, you know, there is there is no time to go out and enjoy some other city. Like that's yeah. what you're there for. You're there. You're there to hang out with those people and see those talks and do those events. So to have a conference in a massive city that you're paying a big premium to be in doesn't actually make a lot of sense. <laughs> I love Ireland. I remember the last time I was there, and. There was a band, remember, and their lead singer. Were you there this year? And there was a lead singer named Paddy, P A D D Y. I've never been there at the, on on the same time that you were there. I don't think so either. So Paddy was no. there, and he was the lead singer of this band, and he had nothing interesting. You know, he had no connection to like Apple related stuff. Um, but he came up to the the pub, and you know, in the you know, without leaving the building, it's sort of like a compound. He came up and was going to have a drink or two. And he just, you know, he's gregarious, you know, showbiz performer, but, you know, but very nice. And it quickly struck up conversations with all sorts of people. And he was having a good time and, and, and never left. <laughs> and then at like midnight, they, they were doing last call and everybody was like, oh man, what are we going to do? Everybody wanted to stay up a little bit later. And Patty went up to the bartender and just it, it, it off, you know, it wasn't like whispering in his ear, but he just like spent about two minutes talking to him. And the next thing you know, the bartender is like slapping on the back and the bartender says, all right, we'll stay open two more hours. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> I've never heard of anything like that in my life. Like where the staff of a place, like, and he got, you know, he like called over, you know, he didn't like make it unilaterally. He called over another bartender and was just like, Hey, what do you, you know, these guys want to keep going. Do you, you know, how about we do two more hours? <laughs> it was a good conference. Um, why do you think WWDC moved from San Jose to San Francisco when it did? I think it was 2003 or 2004. I mean, I don't know. That was before my time. I, I, I think some of the other things I've heard, I think Jason had, had was talking about it on Upgrade, uh, uh, about how, like, you know, back then, Apple really wanted to be, like, in more of the media spotlight with this stuff. So it, you know, it's more prestigious to go there. It's, like, you know, really owning, like, yeah, we're big, we're awesome, kind of attracts more media attention being there. But now the attention comes to them, so they don't, yep. need, they don't need to do that as much. Yeah, know? I think that's it, exactly. I think it was Steve Jobs. And yeah. I think Steve Jobs, you know, Apple was firing on all cylinders. The iPod was slowly turning into a massive hit. The retail stores were slowly turning into a success story. Um, uh, they were, it was the, you know, the last, famously, I, I know that, uh, I think Jason and, and Mike even went over this, that, and the last one at San Jose was the one where they had a funeral for Mac OS nine, which was actually it's kind of force like the only reason they had to it's kind of you think like that's kind of you think like that's a weird thing to do is have a funeral on stage for your product but it was actually because it wasn't dead it was because so many people were still using mac os 9 but it was at the point where they felt like they were in the clear it was three or four years into the i guess at least three years into the mac os 10 era but they were at the point where i think they could see the light at the end of the tunnel that yes we're we're going to make this transition all Macs will be running Mac OS 10. You know, this isn't going to sink us. The first two years of Mac OS 10 was kind of iffy, really, in terms of how big the uptake was. So I think that after that one, you know, the Mac was clearly had a bright future. The iPod was great. Retail was great. And I think Steve Jobs wanted a bigger spotlight 
And I think doing it. In I love the idea of having like a hopeful funeral. <laughs> like we really hope this is it, guys. Please, we're, we're, we're begging you. Please make this dead. I remember they had it, and I, it was before my time of attending WWDCs. But I still had two two Macs at my desk. I had a what did I have? I had a, a Power Mac ninety six hundred that was still running Mac OS nine as my main machine, and then I had a, a an iBook running OS ten. Oh, see, now I have one with a keyboard I can use and one with another one. Yeah. Um, so that's what I think. I think they moved to San Francisco for the publicity. I think that's exactly right, that they wanted more attention. They felt like they need, you know, they could use it. They had stuff to say. They had stuff that deserved more attention, and now they don't. And I don't think San Francisco was ever a good fit for Apple culturally. They're not a San Francisco city. Yeah, they're they're really – they have a very different vibe about them than what I've, I mean, again, I've never, I've never worked for Apple and I've right. never lived in San Francisco. So it's hard for me to say this, but just my, my, my kind of bird's eye view of it, it does seem like they didn't really fit in there. Like there's no, it, put travel aside, like, cause they're, they're, when they moved to the new Apple camp, when they opened a the new Apple, I shouldn't say move because that's exactly my point. But when they opened the new Apple campus too, um, they're not leaving the Apple campus, the original infinite loop campus. They need, they need all the space they can get. And so, I mean, there might be some empty offices for a while, but the, you know, there's going to be back and forth between the original Apple Campus and Apple Campus Two on a daily basis. So having them both in Cupertino is a big deal, um, you know. And they have new office space in San Jose. They have space in a few other places in the South Bay area. But the fact that getting between anywhere in the South Bay is easier than getting from anywhere in the South Bay to San Francisco is a big deal. Like, there's no universe where Apple Campus Two is a skyscraper with the same square footage in San Francisco. It's no, just culturally and, and travel aside, even if part of it was like a, a tunnel dug by Elon Musk that could get you between them in 10 minutes. Uh, even if you could get between them in 10 minutes, there's just no way they would do it. It's just San Francisco is not an Apple town in a way that San Jose, I think is. I'm looking forward to it because it, it, you know, it really is like going to a whole new conference now. And you know, WWDC, I've I've gone now for ah, something like seven years, something like that, and I've I've enjoyed it. But I'm looking forward to something new, something fresh, and yeah. you know, it's it's kind of more exciting now because it's it's going to be something a little bit different. I forget if I went in 2006, so I either went ten years in a row or nine years in a row. Um, yeah, it's one of my favorite things about covering Apple is that. They're very predictable. So if you try to approach them and analyze them in a logical standpoint, you can have success. But they're also resistant to complacency, right? So they're not going to yeah. like ping pong around and move WWDC to random cities every year. But they're not going to keep it in San Francisco just because that's where it's been for 10 years. Which we'll get we'll, we'll get to when we talk about iPhone and iPad form factors soon. <laughs> uh, the other thing too is we you've heard it I've heard it everybody who's gone in recent years has heard that from the longtime attendees who remember the San Jose era there's a reputation that downtown San Jose was kind of sleepy that you know restaurants and bars close early there's quote unquote nothing to do. Um, two things on that is one back then WWDC didn't even sell out. Uh, I don't. Yeah. I forget when the first sellout was, but I don't think it was in San Jose. Um, and the second thing is that talking to a couple of people, WW or uh, downtown San Jose has has improved a lot in the last ten years. That there's been a lot of. Um, uh, all right, I just looked it up. First WWDC to sell out was two thousand eight. 
gee, I wonder what happened in 2008 that would <laughs> cause the first sell. So up until 2008, even the first few years at Moscone, you could like buy a ticket the day before WWDC. Um, I think the fact that this is obviously going to sell out and that there are going to be people in San Jose uh, who don't even have tickets, you know, it's going to be a different vibe. And and a couple people have said that downtown San Jose has really improved a lot. I was just talking well, to a friend, of the, is, like, friend like, of the show, Jim Dalrymple. I was Jim saying Dalrymple. on Twitter, like, you don't really need much. Like, when you're when you're there for a conference, like, you need a handful of, you know, you, you need good hotels that you can hopefully get for a reasonable price. You need, a, you know, you need a bunch of restaurants to be able to get food at. And you need, you know, a, a handful of decent bars and bars in the hotels. Right. And that's about it. Like, you don't need tons and tons of nightlife for a, a tech conference for five days. Right. It's actually better if the bars are generally empty. But are willing to stay open late, so you can yeah. take over him. Um, Dalrymple, I was talking to about it. Now he he's familiar with the area now, and he goes to hockey games at the San Jose. Uh, I forget, I don't know what the name of it is, but wherever the Sharks play, which is only one mile away from the convention center, so it's you know by by city standards not a far walk. Like that's the thing about San Jose is that downtown San Jose is all in one area; it's not spread out. Um, and he said, like, after hockey games, you know, 10, 30, 11, there's all sorts of stuff to do, bars to get beers at and places to eat late and stuff like that. So I, I, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Um, are you going to go no matter what? I'm going, yeah. I actually, last year, I told myself, you know what, I'm not going to get tickets anymore. Like, I'm, because I'm, I'm going to, like, fewer sessions. I'm like, you know, it's, I feel now that, like, I'm wasting a ticket um, because I, I keep trying to do more and more other things. Like, I, I keep getting double booked for time slots with meetings and social events and podcast events and everything. I was like, you know what, I just, I'm just not going to take it. Now, I'm actually kind of, I'm questioning that because <laughs> now it's going to be different. Like, well, maybe I should get a ticket this year. I, I don't know. I, I'm definitely going out there. Yeah, I, I mean, I'll go just to cover the keynote, and uh, I have nothing to announce, but hopefully to do my live show um, again. But the, I always do that and try to always do it on Tuesday evenings. My question is how long to stay. Like, I don't know if I'm going to stay all week. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's Because it, it, the thing is, we don't know. It is a right. whole new conference, effectively. So we don't know if... You know, if you if you say if you plan to like you know go in Sunday and leave Wednesday or so you know something like that, are you going to regret that you didn't stay until the cool things that were going to happen on Thursday night? Like you you don't know, and that's why I'm kind of thinking like I might just do my usual like you know Sunday through uh, Friday afternoon thing. Just yeah. you know, it, worst the worst that can happen is I have a couple bonus days in California. Oh no, you know that's, there are worse things in the world than that. Um. Yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do. But anyway, what a surprise. So that came out like, what, the day after ATP last week? So you guys didn't get to talk yeah, about it yet. Yeah, haven't talked about it yet. Yep. Uh, I think the gist of it, and I think I think everybody's sort of wrapping their heads around it, is I think Apple Apple can spend the money on surrounding stuff around the convention center and the number of people that will be there. You know, attendance is not going up, but it, even if it's just 5,000 plus a couple thousand of people who um, – you know, come in, or I don't know if a couple thousand come, but if a thousand people come just to be there and, and simultaneous with it. And then co the other factor is combined with all the South Bay companies whose employees might come after work when they couldn't, if it was all the way up in San Francisco. Uh, I think it's, I think it's going to feel like Apple's taken over San Jose. Yeah. My main concern is if I don't get a conference ticket, Will I not be able to get into major events that I will then want to get into? Yeah, you know, I don't like know. 
that's that's been like my one my one concern of like you know should I go anyway or not and because in San Francisco there was so much to do everywhere that whether you had a WDC badge didn't really matter for anything except for uh, the beer bash that was the only thing where where it really mattered uh, whether you had it or not but all the other events that happened around the, around the conference were for anybody yeah. and I hope that's going to keep being the case but I don't know yet yeah I think it'll be the same I do. Um, I do think here's my theory. My, one of my theories is that they'll have the bash on campus at Apple campus too. Cause that, I think they that used, would be awesome, but I don't think it's ready. Uh, maybe by June it will be. I don't know. I mean, it's certainly cutting it close. Yeah. I don't know. Or maybe they'll have it back at infinite loop. I don't know. That's what they used to do. Is it big enough? Like is the courtyard yeah. there big enough to hold today's WWDC crowd? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I mean the new, the new courtyard certainly is. <laughs> like Yerba Buena felt crowded, and that's a that's a big yard, you know. So, yeah, know. but if you sp- you know, it got crowded by the stage, but uh, yeah, I don't know. No, it's- no, it was empty by the stage. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you're right. I know you know what I mean. It was very crowded. As f- f- the further back you got from the stage, the crowd more crowded it got because <laughs> none of the de- none of the nerds at the conference ever wanted to right. be near the band. We all wanted to talk to each other. Right, you can't hear. hear. I can't hear you. Let's go to the back. <laughs> it's the worst gig for a band to ever play. <laughs> Uh, some of them have had success. It's, it's, uh, I, I felt bad for them every year. Cause it's, it's like, Oh God, like you, you're talking, you're playing to a bunch of nerds backs who are like plugging their ears cause they're, <laughs> they don't want to hear you. All right. Oh, it's terrible. All right. Let's, uh, let's, uh, shift gears to, there's supposedly a March Apple event and they're going to do, uh, iPads, new iPads, uh, possibly a, a, a 128 gigabyte upgrade to the iPhone SE. And then what else? A new red color for the iPhone SE. Uh, or maybe a new red color for all iPhones. I no, I, I think the rumor was a new red color for the main iPhone 7 line. Oh, maybe. Which is kind of odd to do halfway through a cycle. But, I mean, uh, who knows? You know, it, again, like this is the kind of thing where, like, if we look back and say, well, Apple never does that, you know, we, the iPhone makes a lot of money. Apple's an evolving company. Yeah. They, they can do whatever they want, and they will. You know, if they, if they think there's a good reason to do something like this, they would do it. So I think uh, one of the interesting things is that just about everything we know about or or have heard, I shouldn't say we know, but every just about all the rumors we have about upcoming Apple products all come from Ming-Chi Kuo, the analyst at KGI Securities. Like, he certainly seems like he has the best info the earliest. Right. Like German has had some stories at Bloomberg, but it hasn't really been a lot. He had like an Apple TV thing recently, but it's, you know, it's just 4K coming to Apple TV. In terms of like iPads and iPhones, he hasn't had a lot recently. It seems like it's all coming from Ming-Chi Kuo. Um, it also, it seems like German sources are maybe more in the Mac area. Yeah, um, maybe because he he seems to have more Mac info, and Ming Chi Kuo seems to have more uh, iOS supply chain info. It's all supply chain info. I don't think Ming Chi Kuo has any any sources at Cupertino. I really don't. And a lot of what he gets wrong is from not having those sources, but that he has like seemingly like drinking buddy status with some Foxconn executives. <laughs> um, uh. But it was interesting because I've just yesterday I'm looking at the date. Mac Odakara, the Japanese rumor site, who has a pretty good track record too. Yeah, they're pretty um, good. I mean, I'll put a link in the show notes to the one, but I'll put it the Mac rumors version because it's in English. Um, what they're saying is uh, much like KGI or Ming Chi Kuo, um, 
the new 9.7 and 12.9 inch iPad Pros. So take the iPad Pros we already have, new ones. A bizarre to me rumor of a 10.5 inch iPad, which basically has the same footprint as the 9.7 inch as we know it, but with an edge to edge display. So get rid of the bezels at the top and bottom. So it has a 10.5 inch diagonal display because it gets rid of the bezels. Now, the reason I call that bizarre, getting rid of bezels sounds like something Apple would do, but the reason it sounds bizarre to me is that all these rumors say that it's going to come alongside a new 9.7-inch iPad Pro. Like, to me, what would make the... it What both makes sense and fits the historical pattern is, if they're going to do that, introduce that as the new high-end model at this footprint and put the iPad, the 9.7-inch iPad Pro at a minus... $100 minus $200 price point lower down the chain. But there's an awful lot of all these rumors say that they're going to do both. And now Mac Adakara yesterday says there's also going to be a 7.9 inch uh, iPad Pro. So, in, in other words, an iPad Pro mini. Yeah. Which should be the first update to the mini in quite some time. Yeah, but I think that they've done that before. I've, I think if you look at the updates to the mini, that they've skipped years before. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, let's, you know, easy things first. The 7.9-inch iPad Pro Mini, that makes a lot of sense. And it's probably got last year's specs, right? That's what I would think. It's going to have this. It probably probably has the specs of the current 9.7 Pro, which is, yeah, now a year old. So that makes sense, right? Um, You know, Apple doesn't need to, like, you know, save the Pro name only for the right. higher end products because Pro means they can sell a hundred dollar pencil yeah. and a hundred and fifty dollar keyboard yep. uh, with, with these things. So they they love spreading Pro all over the whole line. I wonder uh, what a I, I mean a keyboard that would fit. I have an iPad Mini in front of me right now. That's a cramped keyboard. But. Yeah, I, I used like a Logitech one once a long time ago, and it was it was nearly impossible to use. It, it was tough. Like the, the nine point seven size allows for a just barely usable keyboard case uh, on it, but the the seven point nine that's tough. They, I mean, they do exist, and I guess somebody's buying them, but that's that's certainly not a good keyboard. Uh, but anyway, um, so that makes sense. So between nine point seven and ten point five, uh, you know. There's there are these kind of similar rumors that we'll probably get to also right. with the whole iPhone seven seven S and eight right. being also simultaneously released in the fall and they're basically being like the iPhone quote eight would be this similar bezel-less, you know, larger screen, smaller case, higher priced model. So that's, you know, if they're going to do that for the iPhone line, whatever their reasons are for doing it there, they ha- maybe they, you know, they finally got their edge-to-edge design and technology lined up so they can finally do this, so they're very excited to do this, but it costs more to do it for various reasons or whatever else, uh, or they just wanted, you know, they wanted to have a premium product because they want to start, you know, if, if people are are really treating their phones and their iPads as computers, uh, both in what they're doing with them and in their replacement cycles, then Apple probably wants them to boost those prices up a little bit. I'm like, well, if you're only going to buy a, a new phone every three years or a new iPad every five, uh, and you're going to treat it like you used to treat your $2,000 laptop, well, if we can get you to pay 1100 bucks for it, that's that's better for us, and we can give you higher-end specs and higher-end, you know, more storage and fancier screen technology and all this other stuff. So it makes lots of sense why they would have higher-priced ones at all. And it, it's totally plausible with modern Apple that they would also keep making lower end ones that, you know, rather, because, you know, when Apple releases new things like this, you know, new iOS devices, new form factors, 
one of the ways that they can release these things that they have in the past is you release the new thing at the old price point and push everything down 100 bucks. The other way you do it is you leave everything at the same price point and you bring the new one in that's 100 bucks more than the old one was because the new one's higher end. So that's what I see them probably doing here. That's probably what the 10.5-inch iPad and the, quote, iPhone 8 with this weird edge-to-edge display, both of those are probably that latter kind of product where they both probably come into an existing lineup that itself doesn't really change or changes only in minor ways, and they come in at higher price points with more premium stuff. Yeah. So I, th- yeah, I think it's almost like you have to, because the pattern is the same, that there's going to be new models in the old form factor and this amazing edge-to-edge, you know, blow away design without the bezels it's the same story for the ipad and the iphone so we might as well Did talk you just forestall the, the blow away thing as a verb i might have <laughs> oh geez or was it an adjective it was an adjective <laughs> an yeah. adjective um i might have <laughs> it's big league it's a big league design uh i thought it was big lee no like it's not every time no everybody says that we're talking about trump here trump uses big league as an adjective and he's he it doesn't make any sense to say big lee it wouldn't he says big league and but it I mean, comes out it comes i don't, out I don't as, think not making sense is necessarily a, a uh, yeah but big league big league <laughs> deal is, killer for. yeah but big league is what he's saying trust me all right and so they, you're, you're gonna have these blow away designs for us all all right keep going <laughs> You can even see it when the White House transcribes his <laughs> remarks. It's it's big league. It's going to be a big league design. Uh, Are you sure that I was just autocorrecting for? <laughs> I you know I I mean would I bet on it? No, but I. I um, uh, it's the same story, but to me, it makes more sense with the iPhone than the iPad. And so the story with the iPhone is that there would be what would presumably be called, or at least described, I mean, again, we can't, marketing names are the hardest thing to know for sure, because they're the tightest held secrets. Oh, but yeah. it sounds like they're going to do the 7S and 7S Plus, exactly like you would think, where it's the same form factor close enough, like down to like the 10th of a millimeter, where you can probably use the same case. Um, with a, would presumably like a better camera and a, maybe like a next generation A series CPU. You know everything. Well, yeah, exactly what you think in a seven a seven S would be. Um, and then also this new iPhone. I don't. I. I. If this is any. If there's any truth to this, I don't think there's any chance that they call this new iPhone the iPhone eight. There's just no way. I think that they would call it the iPhone Pro. Because I think that's the only way that you can have a reasonable amount of excitement for the new 7S and 7 uh, S Plus and have this new phone. Like, it doesn't make sense to me to have an iPhone 8 and a 7S in the same year. Like, why not just – because who wouldn't just buy the 8? Like, well, it's going to be expensive, though. Right. Like, that's it's the part of the like, rumor. You know, all, all the rumors are it's going to be like $1,000, which, like, if you actually look at, like, the, the full price of iPhones, that is not that ridiculous. It's like 150 bucks more than a, than a similarly spec plus model would be. Right. My, know, if, if, assume, if you assume that it probably starts at 128 or 256. Right. Like, know, which it probably does. The, the 256. Uh, no, a rumor came out today that it's going to have two, two models, 64 and 256. <sighs> Really? So, oh, so God. I, I would guess like it might be like <laughs> 10, 1049 for 64 and 1149 for 256. At least it's yeah, only maybe. two. Um, but the idea would be that these get these, this would get slotted in at a new higher price point. 
that the yeah. 7S and 7S Plus would take the existing price points and that they're actually, instead of going lower, they're actually going more upscale. And that and is a very it, it, Apple-like thing to do. Yeah, it makes sense on a lot of levels. I mean, you know, the cynical take is, of course, they're going to make a lot more money because the ASP is going to go up on their most profitable products and all that. So, like, that's a big deal for them financially, for their performance on Wall Street, et cetera. Okay, but also, there there's good reasons for it also. Like, you know, one of them is they can afford to put higher price parts in this one. So you could you could have, like, you know, something that maybe maybe they couldn't afford you know, parts price-wise to put in all the iPhones for a year, because that's a lot of phones, right. uh, then they can have it in this model for people who are willing to pay another couple hundred bucks. And then also, it, you know, if, if the rumors are true that they're doing this crazy edge-to-edge screen thing, that's I, I think it's pretty clearly going to be OLED. Uh, OLEDs are, at this scale, like possibly they're having production yield problems with the type and quality and, and whatever that they're making. And so maybe they can't make like 80 million of them a quarter or whatever the number is. Uh, so they have to have like a mainstream iPhone for this coming year. That isn't this crazy new screen, but they also want to have this crazy new screen in whatever quantity they can make for the people who are willing to pay for it. And it lets them keep like the, the kind of like innovation crown going it like because it, it's 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 like this wonderful like showpiece at the top of the line even if like 60 percent of the buyers aren't buying it yeah i i think though if they do this it has to be in sufficient quantity that they can meet demand as well as they've met it in recent years with whatever the new top of the line is because i think a ton of people are going to want this this crate if if this exact rumor comes true i don't know if it's 40 percent, but it's going to be some it's not going to be like just a sliver like there's going to be an awful lot of people who for an extra 100 or 200 dollars or even 300 dollars, are going to say i want the new hotness and oh, yeah. if it's like if it, i i could see this re- I, I think it's a risk if they if they're really going to do this and i think the idea you know if you're if you're complaining about apple is they don't take risks anymore here's your here's your story because the risk i see happening is if they make this announcement and 40% of everybody who wants to buy a new iPhone in September wants this one and it's instantly backordered three months or something and nobody can get it instantly. <laughs> it will be. None of those people are then going to say, oh, cancel my order, I'll get the 7S. Nobody's going to do that. They're uh, all going to say, I'll wait. I could, so I could, what I could see happening if they can't meet demand at least as well as they've done in recent years, like with just to say, like in a, the quarter they just reported, if they can't meet demand for this iPhone Pro as well as they did for the 7 and 7 Plus three months ago, in what turned out to be the best selling iPhone quarter ever, um, then I think they're in real trouble because nobody, everybody who's waiting for it is not going to settle on the 7S and 7S Plus. And then year over year, it's going to look bad because they're going to take a big hit. It'll even out eventually because eventually, it's not like these pe- people waiting for the iPhone Pro are going to switch to Android. They'll wait till January or February or March or however long it takes to get it. But it's going to look bad in that year over year, quarter over quarter demand. So I think that the idea I've seen people say, oh, they'll do this, and it's sort of just like a like the twentieth anniversary Mac. You know, it's like a it's like a little thing at the at the fringe for just a handful of you know people who are willing to spend a little bit more. Uh, I don't think that's the case at all. I think this would be this might be the best selling phone they come out with next year. 
And I happen to know, I just anecdotally, I see lots of people on Twitter, the people who really care. I mean, we, I've gone on in this along, you know, with the, the, the iPhone seven looking so much like an iPhone six and success, um, that I, I can't see why people are so obsessed with the exterior of the phone, but it's true that an awful lot of people are that they're not even getting into, you know, what the camera does, how good the screen looks, how good the touch sensor is, how good the virtual, the new virtual home button is and all the other things that there are to like about it. There's an awful lot of people and, and you see it in all the tech reviews. You certainly see it in most of the gadget reviews that it's like, ah, it looks like the old iPhone. Meh. There's an awful lot of people who think like that who've been waiting for years for, you know, screw it. I'll, I'll hold on to my old phone for another year because I know Apple's going to come out with a new thing eventually. Yeah. I mean, it, it matters. It matters a lot. And I, I think you're right. Like, I think a lot of people are going to want this new thing. I mean, I, I think, I think we've shown that as customers that no matter what the new iPhone is, no matter how happy we are or aren't with it, it you know, in our social media posts and tech reviews and everything, we all want it, and we're all going to buy it, and we're all going to pay whatever it costs. Uh, so, yeah, they're going to. If this thing is real, it, unless it unless it has some obscene downside, which it probably won't, uh, and and an extra hundred fifty bucks is probably not enough of a downside for enough people, uh, then they're going to sell this thing like uh, literally just they're going to sell as many as they can possibly make. It really, I, I really wonder how why people would buy the 7S and 7S Plus. I, I can totally see why they would keep selling the 7 and 7 Plus at lower prices, but I just can't see why people would uh, why people would sign up. I guess it's people who have more sense, you know, than I do financially and who are like, well, it is $200. <laughs> I'll just get the 7S. <laughs> yeah, and that's a lot of people. <laughs> you know, like they right. like it's it's everybody who who doesn't buy the top of the line model of, you know, in, in any other year. All right. All right, people who don't, you know, don't don't buy the 256, even though they only use 128 of their storage, just in case I they... I don't even buy the 256. I do. I know. I, I can't stand the thought of not having the best one. I just can't. <laughs> and it, I often think, like, and then I talk, I say to myself, like, what happens if you're, like, out and about and, like, breaking news happens and you start shooting video, like, of this, like, major event? Like, I don't want to run out of space to shoot video because my I cheaped out on my phone by $100. You'd have to be shooting a lot of video. Well, I don't know. I just thought that occurs to me. I think the battery would die before you'd fill it up. <laughs> All right. All right. Let, we'll come back to this. I'm going to take another break here for a sponsor, but we, I, I'm not done with this because I want to take this back to the iPad because I don't think I don't think the iPhone story can works with the iPad. Um, but I'm going to take a break here, and thanks to our next sponsor, our good friends at Eero. You guys know who Eero is. We talk about them a lot lately. Uh, they're new Wi-Fi base stations. The old model of Wi-Fi is that you'd get a router, you'd hook it up to your cable modem, put it somewhere, where probably wherever your cable box is in your house, and then hope that that one router would give you good Wi-Fi throughout your whole house. Uh, we've been doing that for like 15 years. Uh, guess what? That model stinks. And the old way, if you did that, you could also maybe get like an extender or something, but then all of a sudden you're, you're playing like junior sysadmin trying to get this to work, to have like a second device that connects to the first device and somehow extends the same network so that when you're just open your device, it looks like the same network, whether you're upstairs or downstairs or whatever. Uh, Eero is a system designed from the ground up to have multiple devices spread throughout your house. And it just coordinates all the nerdy stuff to make that happen seamlessly all by itself. 
you don't even have to separate which device is the main one and which one are the satellites. They're all actually the same little Apple TV style size hockey puck type things. Uh, Really nice design. You can put them anywhere in your house. I can't, if you have a Wi-Fi router anywhere in your house, the Eero is almost certainly better looking than smaller device. Um, they recommend three for most houses. You could just go to their website and they'll tell you, put, put like how many floors your house in, how many square feet, and they'll give you a recommendation on that. If you buy four and you really only need three, you can send one back. Uh, you can figure the whole thing through a nice, really nice app. Like you don't have to go to like some weird website on the router at, at 192.168, whatever. None of that stuff. Uh, it's a really nice app. You don't have, and you don't have to worry. You're not playing sysadmin. You're just, uh, you know, setting it up the way you want it to be. You want to have a guest network? You'd say, give me a guest network. Then your network has a guest network. That's it. You're done. Really, really great. I've got one here. I've set it up. I've replaced an Apple base station set up in our house uh, with Eero, and the speeds are way better. Uh, they even tell you in the app what your speeds are, so you can check, and you can even it'll even tell you what kind of speeds you're getting from your cable company or FiOS or whatever you've got. They even have great customer support. It's something that the company's really invested in. You can call, and you get a hold of a real Wi-Fi expert within 30 seconds just in case you need it because, look, this stuff's tough. So maybe something happens. 30 seconds, you're talking to an expert. Where do you go to find out more? Easy. Go to eero.com slash thetalkshow. Go to the talk show, use that code, and uh, you'll get something nice. <laughs> I think you get expedited shipping. Yeah, that's I'm pretty sure you, that's it. Yeah, you get expedited shipping, shipping at eero.com. So use that code, the talk show. What's your talk? What's your code? Probably ATP. I think so. You yeah. could use ATP too, and then and then uh, Marco will get credit for it. Either way, it's fine with me. Good company, Eero. Uh, so anyway. I don't think that this middle iPad that doesn't have a bezel, I don't think that it has the same cachet that that this rumored iPhone does. Like, would I pay an extra $200 to get a way cooler looking iPhone? Yes. Would I pay an extra $200 to get a cooler looking iPad? No, I don't think so. Well, I, I think it's, you know, the, the iPad approach that Apple has taken in recent years has been pretty much scattershot. Just like... We have this product category. It's not performing as well as we want it to or need it to. So let's try a bunch of stuff. And, and that has resulted in a lot of you know, weird attempts for things and a lot of things that are really good. Uh, and you know, the whole iPad Pro uh, branch of the product line, the, the whole thing with making a pencil uh, after you know, everyone assumed Apple never would because Steve Jobs made, some, made one comment 20 years ago. Like, you know, it, they've, been, they've been just trying a bunch of stuff. And the fact is, um, it, it, what what most people need out of their iPads uh, to to like you know get more work done or more of their work done is really tricky, difficult, long term software stuff. That's much harder to do. It's much easier to just let's try some new screen sizes and some new hardware abilities. Like that's actually easier to do than like let's figure out file management on iOS or windowing or any like those are way harder. And, and, you know, and, or let's fix the app store pricing ecosystem. Like yeah. that's way harder than Apple, who's already an excellent hardware company making one more screen size or the, making, you know, one more hardware configuration. The iPad has never been to my mind an ooh and ah industrial design uh, product, except for maybe the first one. The first one 
was like because it was just like a quote unquote they're making a tablet nobody knows it's going to be thick is what how big is it nobody knew you know what it was going to be like and then we saw it and it was like wow this is really nice and it's wow this is really kind of cool to have something with the touch latency of an iphone on a big screen um it, it you know it was impressive but then every iteration since then has been very iterative to my mind like there's never been one generation where you're like whoa it, with the possible exception of the move from non-retina to retina. But even then, it's not really the the way it looks w- without turning it on. You know, like what the rumors about this iPhone Pro or iPhone 8 or whatever you want to call it, are that it's going to look like, wow, what is that before you even turn it on? Um, it doesn't seem, you know, that was never really the case with, with iPads. I mean, the current iPads look an awful lot like the original one. I mean, the backs are flat now. Um, and the bezel on the side is narrower, but like the top and bottom bezel is almost exactly the same. I think what it is, it, you know, it, it's a combination of them like trying to figure out like, you know, what else can we try here to to turn around the sales curve and, and to, to let this product really come into its own. Uh, and then also just like the iPad, I, I don't think it's about flashiness. I, I think this is actually just about utility. The iPad really struggles between how much screen size you get versus how nice it is to use. It's it's really this incredibly, you know, polar opposite relationship where, like, if you want to get anything more done on it than browsing the web and watching video, you really want more screen space. Uh, like, if you try multitasking at all, the 9.7 can do it, but it's it's, you know, it's pretty tight. And it, it, and the people who like like people we know like in the community who are big pro iPad users who who get a lot of their work done on iPads almost always prefer the twelve point nine now for getting like quote work done just because it has more screen space. Yeah. But you know anyone who's ever used a used a twelve point nine can can tell you like it's pretty big to like for an iPad like for a laptop it's still nice and small but for an iPad the way you use and hold an iPad. Uh, it really is quite large. Uh, and so it, adding that screen space to get the 12.9 and its ability to have multitasking be better and to get more work done and more effectively has come at a great cost of this kind of unwieldy size for hand-holded iPad use. Uh, that's why I think a lot of 12.9 users use like you know keyboards and stuff where it's kind of more like a laptop propped up on a table more of the time because if you're actually like using it like one-handed, like you know, one hand to hold it and the other hand to like touch it or use the pencil, like that's a pretty big iPad to do that with. It's kind of awkward. It's kind of unwieldy. So this this ten point whatever I think is an attempt to cram that screen resolution into the smaller body, which for iPad power users, and I, I guess we don't know how many of those there are, but but for iPad power users, that sounds incredible. That sounds like exactly what so many people would want. In, I want an iPad that is that is still small enough to feel and handle like an iPad, and that means nine point seven, roughly, you know, physical dimensions. Yeah, but that would have more screen space, so I could better multitask and get more of my work done on this device, or get my work done more efficiently on this device. And the speculation, I think, is that the the pixel resolution is instead of being at two hundred and sixty six pixels per inch, it's going to be three twenty six, which is the pixel resolution of the retina mini and, and the, the iphone and the iphone um that seems really small to me for a device that you would hold at a 
further away distance, but maybe that's just my aging vision speaking. I, I mean, know. it's just it's just like the iPad Mini. You know, it's like it, like right. if the iPad, you know, the iPad Mini just has like the nine point seven re- resolution shrunk down, it's going to be that same relationship. So, like, if the iPad Mini looks acceptable to you and you can use it without eye strain, then this would probably work for you too. It just uh, seems so. It, it's yeah. It, it just seems like a confusing decision, though. Which one you would buy? Doesn't it? You well, don't think it's so. It's probably going to be more expensive than than the equivalent nine point seven. But so that it be- it's probably going to be like a hundred bucks more at least. So, you know, it's, and then maybe like slightly cheaper than the 12.9 version of it, you know? So who knows? I mean, it, it we'll see what they do. I, I think at this point, it's very clear that Apple's strategy with the iPad, again, it's, it's scattershot. It's like, let's just try a bunch of stuff and see what works and just give people tons and tons of options. You know, they, they, they will now sell you an iPad at pretty much every hundred dollar price point from 250 on up to like 1100 and it's like any of these price points pick your price whatever you're willing to pay for an ipad we got one to sell you at exactly that price point but a little bit more after accessories (laughs) like and and i think for for what they're trying to do with the ipad like i I think it's very clear that again I, i i think they're they they maybe don't really know what will work and what won't to boost sales or to carry this platform forward. So they are just trying a bunch of random stuff at this point. And I'm sure there, I'm sure there's more thought that goes into it than that, but it, it certainly seems like they're taking a lot of hardware risks here in order to just cover more of the market in hopes that people will want what they're now making without having to really dramatically change iOS to be more PC like. I don't it just seems really it just seems really curious to me that it would that this new bezel design would a debut alongside the iPad Pro two, you know, I don't know. I believe. I, I, I mean, I'm not saying I wouldn't under Steve, but but I think this is kind of a hallmark of Tim Cook's Apple is like, you know, just it is is not not an aversion to throwing a bunch of different options out there. Uh, I don't think from. that's Tim Cook. I really don't. I I, I don't know. I, I I don't know what the thinking. I think there's something we're missing if this is true. I just don't get it. I don't know. Um. I do think, have you played around with the math? There was a, a Mac Rumors had a report from Ming-Chi Kuo on this new, the iPhone, as I'm calling it, the iPhone Pro, as others are saying, the iPhone 8, which supposedly has a 5.8-inch OLED display, but that's the whole device. And only 5.15 inches of it are really the sort of, what we think of as the iPhone display now, and the rest is like the chin, and presumably there'll be new features in the OS that can light stuff up down there. Um, uh, but basically if you do the math and he's exactly right, it's a device that's a very different aspect ratio than the iPhone as we know it. Yeah. Like it's too tall and skinny. Yeah. It's basically a device that the hardware is as narrow as an iPhone SE because it's an edge to edge display. And if you actually put like an iPhone SE or an iPhone 5 on top of a 4.7 inch iPhone and turn the screen on and then put this like an iPhone SE on top of it, it's pretty much exactly the same width. Hang on, I'm doing uh, this now. Yeah. <laughs> I, got, I got these things right here. All right. So it's a so, device. Yeah, you're right. It's a device that's actually narrower in hand than an iPhone 7, you know, than a 4.7 inch. It's more like an SE in hand, yeah. but it's as tall as an iPhone 7. In other words, it's as tall, almost exactly the height and as a device of the iPhone with a 4.7-inch screen. So as a piece of hardware in your hand, not even turning it on, it would be smaller than an iPhone 7, about the same height and a little narrower. Um, but the, the 
aspect ratio that KGI is saying it, it instead of being 16 to 9 it's more like 2. Point, it's like 2.15 to 1 it's more like a widescreen movie you know like a, a yeah. anamorphic movie it's a lot wider it's not just a little bit wider than 16 to 9 it's it's a lot wider yeah i mean that that's why i think the the most likely explanation for this is just like there's some other key piece of information that we don't know, you know, about, about how the screen is used, how it's shaped around the device. Uh, you know, maybe like there's this like function area at the bottom where presumably some kind of like home button area will go. Maybe there's one at the top also, which would, which would slice off that other part of the aspect ratio and therefore make it look right. Uh, who knows? But these, this is getting into really nitty gritty specifics that I think we probably don't, have enough information to really gauge, you know, what's real here and what's not. I mean, it's it's so early, and there's no one, there's no other information backing this up besides KGI stuff, uh, which again, KGI stuff has been good about a lot of de- a lot of details about stuff, especially you know, on, I, component, I'd say, on component type stuff, right? Right, but all this, you know, all this is saying is the panel resolution, and there's lots of things that could, you know, affect that being correct or not and and that being like how we think of the screen shape on the phone or not like you know OLED allows lots of flexibility it allows you know not only like different shape things but it allows like holes to be cut in panels and stuff like that it, it, you can do all sorts of crazy stuff with OLED right. so it, it could be something weird that we don't that we we can't explain this yet with what we know but it could be a much less interesting story than than you know. Oh, it's going to be a new shaped phone. Like, well, it it might just be. It might look like what we have now in general proportions and aspect ratios, mm-hmm. and just have this weird implementation detail about why the screen happens to be this certain resolution. Would you want it to be that tall? Do you think? Like, what if it? What if it really is just it's as wide as a uh, iPhone seven, but tall? You know, way taller. So, like, you'd see more messages in a list in mail. If you're reading an article, you'd see more of the article on screen at once, but at the exact same width. Hmm. As the designer of an app that has to lay out a giant square in the middle of its now playing screen, <laughs> that would be awesome. But as a user of the phone, I don't think I need that really. I mean, that's. I think there's a lot of advantages to the to the phone display being 16 by nine. Uh, one of them is when you turn it sideways and shoot video, you have the whole screen and it looks right. right. Um, so there, there's a lot of advantages to that. Uh, 16 by 9 allows you to lay out a lot of different shapes fairly nicely within it. Uh, you know, squares, four by three. You know, so and so it's. I don't. I don't think I really want the screen to be taller and skinnier. But who knows? I mean, I'd have to actually see it and use it. Well, the screen wouldn't be any skinnier, and the numbers add up. So he's saying that the this is his numbers for the pixel resolution two thousand four hundred thirty six high. This is for the display area, not the whole panel, but the part that would be used as a display area by eleven twenty five wide. Now eleven twenty five wide is really interesting because an iPhone seven and the iPhone six S and the six, the ones that were four point seven inches, have uh, three hundred seventy five point. And mm-hmm. uh, at two x, and it's in pixels. It's what is three seventy five times two? It's uh, seven fifty. Yeah. And so, if you take three seventy five times three, guess what? You get eleven twenty five. So, yeah, so it basically, would, it's saying it's, we're going to have three x. It's exactly three x. So it it would be the exact same point for point size as the iPhone 
4.7-inch screens that we know, except instead of being at 2x resolution, it would be 3x. And unlike the Plus phones, it would be a real 3x with no yep. downsampling. Which I mean, that would look great because the Plus phones with their like you know rendered three X scaled down to 1080p, that already looks really nice. Like it does. It isn't. It isn't a massive difference over two X, but it is a difference. It, yeah. Like you, it does, it does just kind of look nicer, yeah. and I, I can't explain why. Right. I don't think I can really see like the pixels for making it, but it just does look nicer. Yeah. So you know, to have it be true three X, uh, and not even have to do the downsampling compared to what we have now in the 4.7 inch line, I think would look really great. Yeah. I think that like 10 years ago or, or prior the downsampling technique, even if it was technically a higher resolution screen, but if you downsampled, it might look bad. I think it probably would have, but I think at this point, the pixels are so small that downsampling actually makes it look better. So long as the actual pictures are smaller, but anyway, this rumored phone would actually be true three X resolution. Which and the fact that the numbers really add up makes gives me makes me think that he's onto something. Yeah, I, I think because like these are these are weird numbers to just make up or to like to misinterpret. Yeah, you know, like so I, th- there is probably something here. I, I think again, the only question comes down to like how are these pixels actually allocated to the various screen elements? Right. And what does the app get and what does the system get? So anyway. Right, exactly. Uh, the other last aspect of this is that it's, it seems like nobody knows what the hell is going on with Touch ID. It seems like some of this stuff is like, well, uh, Touch ID must go away because the display goes all the way to the bottom. So there's nowhere to put the little sapphire button. Right, which uh, is wrong. I think so, too. I don't think I, – I, I think that there's a way to integrate it into the screen. Uh, just put it in the middle, you know. And – you know, clearly the move away from the physical button last year to a virtual button that has haptic feedback would play right into this. Um, but then there's all these rumors, also rumors that they're going to use a new fancy new camera to do face recognition or something like that. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they do that, but I would be a little surprised if they did it in place of Touch ID because I feel like Touch ID, it's it seems like it's like a habit people already have. I don't feel like they could take that away. Well, I mean, they again, they could, they they could try whatever they want, especially if it's on like this weird high end one that is already kind of like selecting for fewer buyers. But, uh, but I I'm, I think it's unlikely. I'm I'm with you on that. I mean, again, we'll see what happens. I mean, we, I think we all thought the headphone jack was unlikely too. But no, I didn't. That, okay, yeah, that's right. You, you didn't. Well, I couldn't wait for him to get rid of my headphone jack. Uh, uh, anyway, so that's uh, I don't have the energy for that today. But, but yeah. Um, uh, the the whole face recognition thing, uh, I, I, I they, I'm sure they wouldn't do it if they couldn't do it really well. Right. The same thing um, with the fingerprint, where the first fingerprint yeah. sensor was was pretty darn good. Yeah, and and like when you compared to previous fingerprint sensors at the time, they were all really awkward and garbagey, and Apple came out with a really good one, and now they're all pretty, you know, they're all a lot better than they used to be. Yeah. Uh, you know, people saying now that their like face recognition on their Samsung whatever whatever uh, was was crappy. Uh, I, I think again, like I don't I don't see Apple doing this unless they could do it really well. So I wouldn't worry too much about what these things have been like in the past from other people. Right. Uh, but I still, despite saying that, I still think it's pr- it's unlikely that this is what they have in mind. Just because it it doesn't sound like it would be better. It sounds like it would be worse. Yeah. I guess the other thing, too, is that when I first heard these rumors a few months ago, I was really, really skeptical. Because, again, same thing with the iPads. Right? It's so un- atypical for Apple to introduce 
two generations of new stuff at the same time, right? Like the if they do this, the seven S and seven S plus are totally going to get lost because they're they're debuting as mid range phones, and that's just hasn't happened before. Um, and the other aspect is that Apple has had so much success since the iPhone six by selling two size phones. It really three size if you count the SE, which is obviously a surprise hit. I mean, they've admitted yeah. that they underestimated demand for that. Um, so multiple sizes have proven so popular. Why in the world would they come out with a brand new design at only one size? But when you do all the math and think about this, it's actually a pretty good size to be a one size fits all because it's, uh, you know, the usable display area is. 4.5.45 inches more than the 4.7 inch phone diagonally. It's 0.35 inches less than the 5.5 inch phone. Yeah, so it's, it's right a, in the middle. Right in the middle, and and airs a little bit on the bigger side. Yeah, but physically in hand, it's narrower than the 4.7 inch phone, which is to me the biggest factor of what makes the iPhone SE so so nice to hold is that Agreed. it's so narrow. So in terms of like, well, you like something that fits in your hand really securely and that you can go from side to side with your thumb and you like the fit more information on screen at once, like an iPhone 7 Plus. And the last aspect to all these rumors is that it's supposedly going to have a um, iPhone 7 Plus caliber, at least in the general range, battery as opposed to the 4.7, because that's the other factor. I mean, I know it. I mean, there's some people who just love the big phone, and you and I both know people who have the 7 Plus, and they don't even like the size, but they do. I mean, I think you were even talking about it, where mm -hmm. the battery life alone is sometimes a reason enough to get it. Like, ah, yeah. it doesn't fit in my pocket. It's too, too big to hold, but I could use it all day and still have battery life at the end of the day. Although, to be fair, that was a lot more true of the 6 versus 6 Plus yeah. than it has been of the of the 6S or 7 generations. Like, the gap is now smaller. Yeah. Uh, and to the point where now, like, the battery life on the 7 is actually pretty decent. And on the 7 Plus, it is better, but it's not better by as much as it used to be in the previous ones. Yeah. it's It's got to say, it's it's the 7 has the best battery life for me, I think, of any iPhone I've ever had. Yeah, me too. Um the only time I ever get down into red is on days when I somehow am in a circumstance where I didn't even start the day with 100%, which is rare because usually I sleep with it charging. But anyway. Uh, all right, let me take another break here and thank our third and final sponsor of the day. Who do you think it is? Do you have a guess? Hmm. Casper, Squarespace, Hover. Well, you, gotta, you can only guess one. I'm going to go Squarespace. Ah, oh, Casper. Ah. Oh. Casper. You guys know Casper. They're the obsessively engineered mattress, and they sell it at a shockingly fair price. Go to casper.com slash the talk show and use that code, the talk show, and you will save 50 bucks towards any mattress. Insert X asterisk right there. There's a footnote. You have to wait for it. Here's the deal. Terms and conditions do apply. Casper to me is it's it's like an apple like company where to me design is making decisions and they've designed one perfect mattress you don't go to casper and select from like six different types of mattress and then get the size you want no you just pick the size you want that's it and then they send it to you and it's one perfect mattress they've engineered they have mattress engineers that's a real thing they spent a lot of money and time to get one mattress that's just is the right mattress for most people combination of uh supportive memory foam and uh uh 
all sorts of other technology. Ships to you in a little box. It's about it's the size of like a little like like a little dorm room refrigerator, or maybe a little bigger than that, but remarkably small for a big mattress. You put it in your bedroom. You open a box, following their instructions. It sucks all the air out of the room to fill the mattress. So you you get lightheaded when you do it, and you'll you kind of get dizzy. Um, <laughs> But it's fun to be in a room when it happens. It makes a very cool sound. And then, boom, you've got a great mattress. I say it all the time. It's Going to a mattress store is gross. Because what do you want to do? You want to sit on a bed that all sorts of other people have come in and sat on and laid on and whatever. And laying on a mattress with bright fluorescent lights in a mattress store it doesn't simulate sleep. So the fact that you can actually sit on a mattress in a retail store doesn't really give you any better hint of whether you're going to like the mattress you buy anyway. So why don't you just trust Casper? Buy it next time you need a mattress. They give you a 100-night home trial. If you don't love it, they'll just give them a ring or go to the website. They'll pick it up at your house and give you a full refund. No questions asked. No hard sell. This is not like – it's not like – sending your cable box back and cord cutting where they, uh, you know, send like a Gestapo after you to, to try to keep you. No, they'll just say, okay, sure. Sorry. You know, here's your money back. We'll come pick up the mattress. Uh, here's the asterisk. They also sell a dog mattress. And I keep hearing from people who've bought it for their dogs that their dogs <laughs> I love. Didn't know that. Yeah. They have a dog mattress and it's very, very popular. People uh, uh, who've got it, listeners of the show who've gotten it, love it. But here's the deal. You don't save the 50 bucks on it because it's like a lower cost mattress. And this is the gist of it is I got a whole bunch of email from people who bought the dog mattress. And then they said, Hey, I just wanted to say, I love the mattress. My dog loves it, but the 50 bucks code didn't work. I botched it the first time they had the dog mattress. So anyway, go to casper.com slash the talk show. Remember that code, the talk show, say 50 bucks towards your mattress, unless it's a dog mattress, but you'll get 50 bucks of love from your dog. That'll, that'll make up for it. Oh yeah. All right. Why don't we talk about, uh, overcast overcast 3.0 just shipped yesterday. Yeah, and big update. I knew you were working on this, but I somehow had no idea that it was that close to shipping. I think I was even on the beta. Was I on the beta? You, uh, you were definitely on the list. I, yeah. I don't know if you actually ever installed it, but you were on the list. I think I did. I think I remember my overcast having the orange dot next to it, but I don't. I I never remembered any. I I I remember the switch to cards and talking to you about it, and I remember playing with the slide on the card. This was months ago, though, and and you had it. Really yeah, well, like when I was when I was in Philly, I showed you a prototype, and right. you were, I had you play with it on my phone and tell me what you thought. I'd hop sing, right? We were at Hop Sing, and yeah. I, I was playing with it, and I had, and it was already it, the prototype was very very good. And I had very minor feedback, but it was I couldn't even find anything to complain about. Um. I forget what I wrote today. Did I write this today? I know I wrote a bit about the business model, but did I write about how if you casual user not paying attention isn't going to mm-hmm. be even though yeah. So that's my two points is that uh, it's a great update because all these things, every single thing you documented on your blog about the changes, I think every single one of them, it's like yes, I totally agree. This is better. This is better. This is better. But I think a casual person who just wants to listen to podcasts, they they and if they have like auto updates on, they may not even notice that that it's a new version. Yeah, it's it's odd because here I was like, you know, really busting my butt and and just changing. It was a lot of work going into these changes in Overcast three, and then at the end, when it comes time to like, you know, write the release notes and start like promoting it to people, and it's all right. Well, what what's the list of new features in three point <laughs> And it's like, uh, I redesigned a lot of the UI. That's about it. 
there's like there's like a couple of like Q features here and there, but it's a, and and there's a new watch app that's which is, actually does less than the old one, but is way faster. Uh, and that's about it. Like it, the the bullet point list of what is new in this update is incredibly short. Unless I want to go through and like itemize all the little UI changes, but nobody wants to read that because nobody cares. Uh, what you care about is the whole thing, like how how the whole thing feels and works for you and everything else. And there were tons of changes and tons of of time that went into this that most of which is fairly subtle or hidden or is the kind of change that you notice the very first day you use it and then it just becomes normal and you you immediately stop noticing because <laughs> that's how this app is now and uh and you know and things like you know the whole the card uh, ui that took forever to get working <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that took so long and and so much work and there and there are still so many like weird little considerations with it uh like one of the things i had to issue a, a quick 3.0.1 update because i i moved all of the like secondary screens in the app into these cards because i have like a reusable controller that i that i can use for anything now uh to put it in one of these cards and the problem is that when a when an iOS standard table view is in one of these cards in certain modes, uh, the reorder controls, like the drag handles when you're when a table's in reordering mode, just don't work. Hmm. Like it moves like you know two pixels and then stops. And it's only because it's in this card environment and a few a few of the implementation details of that. Uh, and so I had to issue an update today that just moved the playlist editor out of a, out of the cards because. I, otherwise you can't reorder the, the priority podcast setting. And it's like, we, like when I was in development, there were so many weird cases like this where like some, some part of the UI would fail in a weird way if it was moved to this card thing. And, and so I had to either try to figure out why and see if I could work around it or reimplement it in a different way. So it wouldn't fail. And, and that's just, that's just one, you know, this, that card thing is just one of the changes. And there were just so like, I mean, just so many, so much time going into seemingly minor things like that. Uh, even other things like the full-time drag handles now on the playlist. That is not easy to do in UI table view. No, I know that. <laughs> I, do. I did it. It's not a collection view. It is still a table view. Right. And the way I did it is such an incredible hack. And that took a long time too. Uh, similarly, like having... Having like the tweetbot style where you tap on the episode and a little row of buttons expands out from the bottom of it that you can then select actions from. Again, a, a seemingly small thing in the UI, but that takes a long time to implement and to figure out how you have to abuse the system frameworks to let them let you do this. Like it's all like, and, and you know, you know from Vesper stuff, like a lot of times it's these little tiny implementation details or these little tiny. Uh, interactions or UI affordances that they make all the difference in the world when you're using the app and like how nice it is to use or how easy it is to use. But like one of those little, little behaviors or little animations or implementations might take you weeks to just develop that one little thing. It's, it is my opinion that the modern touchscreen UI that was, that, that started with the iPhone is a trickier and inherently more limited uh, interaction model than the mouse pointer interface that we've had since you know 
the Mac and you know go back to to the the Xerox thing that was before the Mac um, in a lot of ways. So just and I think that most people don't think about it. You don't have to. You shouldn't have to if you're not a designer. But when you are a designer, you suddenly realize that you're you're limited in a certain way. So for example, like let's just say a list of things, you have a list of rows and you can drag them to reorder. There's all sorts of apps that do stuff like this. Um, on a Mac, you would think, well, I could just click on the row I want to move up and hold the mouse button down and drag up. And that's exactly how you do it. You click on it and drag and you don't have to click and wait. You just, you could click and wait and then drag, or you could just click and drag immediately, and it just works. Well, you can't do that on a touchscreen, because if you're in a list and you just touch and immediately move down or move up, you're scrolling the list, because mm -hmm. touching on the list and, mo and moving your finger is how you do it. So how do you take an item and move it up if you can't just touch on it and move up? <laughs> So it's yeah. You can't have like a modifier. Yo, just hold down command. There is, nope. and the truth is, there's no perfect solution. There's a perfect right. solution with a mouse pointer, which is just allow the user to click and drag up. On on touch screens, I can think of there's three ways I can think to do it. Apple's usual way is to have an edit button in the top right that you tap this edit button, and then it switches it to a mode where there's like a little grippy strip over there, and you can use that grippy strip to drag things up and down. And if you touch on the grippy strip and drag, it won't scroll the list. It'll drag the thing up. The way Vesper did it, and a lot of other apps do, is you tap and hold. And after a brief, and you know, again, this is the sort of thing where you sit there and you play with little fractions of a second to see how long is too short and how long is too long. But you know, you're drag. You know, you're moving it because it visually pops up off the screen, and you yeah. can see that it's sort of like raised. And then you're you're moving the item up and down. Um, I like the solution you came with, where you just put the grip strips there all the time. And so you can't scroll the list from over at the edge of the screen, but, you know, most of it you can. Yeah, and most people don't scroll all that far at the edge anyway, so it's fine. Yeah. Um, because, you know, what I found, like, I, I made this whole blog post about, like, and, and actually, like, you know, this this blog post was the release of Overcast 3 and kind of the announcement of Overcast 3, but I titled it Design Walkthrough because this really, like, this release really was effectively a redesign um you know not like not like 100 percent redesign a lot of things look kind of similar or the same but um there's a lot more redesigning than anything else in this release and and that's because you know over the last couple of years since i since i made 1.0 like i've gotten literally thousands of emails and tweets from people with feedback and some you know support questions and things like that like i've seen i basically had a lot of feedback to show me all the ways in which the old design failed and by that, by that I mean, like you know, people weren't able to find features that they wanted to find, or they couldn't understand the way something worked, or something caused errors to you know people to to erroneously invoke it, or things like that. Uh, and so, there were one of the one of the major themes I learned over the last couple of years is these built-in iOS standards, things like tapping edit in the top right corner and then having a table view switch to this mode where you can delete or reorder or batch operate on, on things in a list, uh, or even just swiping a table cell to delete it. These things that, you know, we like power users have known literally since iOS 1.0 introduced most of them. Most people who use iPhones these days 
don't know those things. They no. never find it. They don't know you can swipe on a table view to reveal a delete button. Right. They don't. They they never tap the edit button in the corner. And if they if they do, they quickly undo it because they don't really understand what it does and don't care. So there's lots of like kind of assumed knowledge of platform uh, standards that I went into with this that I think a lot of iOS developers still do. That that the reality is the customers don't have that vocabulary yeah. in, in enough quantity. Yeah, I think that you, you can only really count on them finding what they can see. Exactly. Right? And if you can't, if the only way to do it is is a way that you don't see, you have to do something to see it, like slide the row, they won't find it. That's why, you know, if you look at an app, like I think it's a super successful app, is an app like Apple's Mail for iPhone. That's why there's a trash can when you're in a message view, but also why why you could swipe on the message in the list of messages and delete it from there. Yeah. But that trash can has to be there. Because exactly. some people I mean, would be shocked to find out that you can delete a message any other way. Yeah, because like even you know, even like the edit button in the corner, that is visible, but it's not even obvious enough. Like what it does or why like if you're in a list, like what does that even mean to edit in the corner of this entire list of episodes? Like yeah. like a lot of people just don't think that way. They don't. They don't try to to poke everything and see. Oh, what is what does this weird word do that I that doesn't seem right. to specify anything you know in particular. I hate to spring this on you, but all right, I'm in all episodes, <laughs> and there is an edit button up there. But yeah, I, I don't still there. I don't understand what it does. I hit edit, and then it says done, and it just toggles between edit and done. But what's different? Do you actually have the latest version? I think so. <laughs> Because <laughs> normal, what's supposed to happen is if you hit edit, you're supposed to get a little header on top that says edit playlist on one half and delete playlist on the other half. And then all the rows turn into the multi-select toggle dots on the right. Oh, maybe I don't have the latest version. <laughs> I don't know. I thought I updated to the App Store version. Let me see if I make a new playlist. I mean, you might have found a bug, but... I might have. I don't know. Not how it's supposed to work. <laughs> um... Anyway, I agree with you though. Um, what about the so the other factor, and we talked about it, and and one of the things that lets you do this, and you and I have had discussions about this over the years, you know, going back to Vesper and and Overcast, and that okay, well, let's just give up. You know, the old model for indie software developers is you pre app store, you sell a version, let's say it's thirty dollars, and then you do version two point and you still sell it for $30, but you give your existing users an upgrade price. Maybe they get it for half off. Maybe they get the new version for $14.99. Maybe you sell it the upgrade for just $9.99. But then the idea is you keep building users, and the ones who st keep using the app will, every year or however often you come out with a major upgrade, keep giving you upgrade money. Um, and that's what funds the continued development of the app because eventually you stop getting uh, you know you, you you max out on new users and you need to monetize your existing user base well there's no upgrades in the app store uh and so new models are called for if you want to sustain an app um i th i i think you've come across an interesting one because the, the downside to the old model and as much as everybody you know i still kind of wish the app store supported it and allowed users the uh, developers the option of doing it the downside to it is that everybody seems to agree that the way you know it, most cases people would decide whether to buy the upgrade to the new app or not based on what are the new features 
And so like that Overcast 3, like where you say, like, it's hard to say, like, here's all the new features. It may not sell as a paid upgrade because well, it's just what? It's just a modernized, uh, you know, version of the same UI. Um, but to me, this is the sort of thing I like, I'm glad to pay for because it's exactly what I want in an app. Well, yeah, because like if you if you do it the other way, like where where you're dependent on that upgrade revenue for new features every release, then you get Microsoft Office, where right. you have like there was there's all this pressure to just add right. more and more and more features, even if it kind of makes the app worse to have more features added to it. Uh, but that's the, that's what the incentive structure kind of forces you to do. Uh, and that's why that's one of the reasons why you see these major apps like Office and Adobe Creative Suite trying to get away from that model and moving towards subscriptions so aggressively over the last few years. And I think they've both pretty much completed that move. Yeah. Uh, where like, you know, now they're kind of free to do things better. Yeah. <laughs> as, it, as opposed it, to like the old model of like having having to try to justify your revenue every single year with like a, a bullet list of features that you added. Right. It just it, it eventually even the it, however much it was ever in dispute within those companies, it becomes obvious to everybody that it's not sustainable forever. You can't just keep adding more and and and, and assume that that means better. Well, and you can for a while, like you right. know, if it, and it's generally like when things are young. So when when the applications are young, or like you know, in the, in the case of like you know Adobe and Microsoft, a lot of their revenue came from people like. You know, OSs were still young, right. and as OSs would change, you'd have to get the new versions of the apps to just work on the new OS. Right. Computers were still young; you'd be buying like a new computer every three, three to five years or whatever it was. That would be so different from your old one, and so much better that you would buy new software to take advantage of it or whatever. And like now, everything's a lot more settled down in these yeah. in these industries, and that's true of mobile as well. Like you know, the upgrade cycles are getting longer for these things, and and, and all the OSs are kind of settling down and and maturing and so and and all these and if you if you've had any kind of you know long-standing product i mean hell my podcast app is only like two and a half years old and i'm already running out of of features that i think i want to add to it like right. there's at, at a certain point you've you add pretty much everything that, that you think it needs and it's kind of done feature wise but that doesn't mean it can't be improved right so what you've uh arrived at after like you know and again you've 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 changed it subtly with each major release but where you are now is uh it's a free download so anybody can get it try the overcast for free which i think is a, essential in today's yeah. world it's I, been free since day one I, I i don't regret that for a minute right well i think you're and i think it it's proven right and um because it's it's there's just you know i've said this before but i really do think it's true that when people, there's just too many people who, uh, uh, if they're looking for a podcast app or they're looking for a notes app or whatever the app is, they'll start looking and they will start trying free ones. And eventually one of the free ones, will, oh, I guess this is good enough. And yeah, exactly. they never get past that. They never get past it. Even if your app is 99 cents, there's just too many people who never, ever say, I'm going to try, I'm going to, I'm going to cough up a dollar before I even try it just because the screenshots look good. I mean, yeah. some people will, but it's not enough. And you're, there's too many free ones and there's too many free ones that really are good enough. Yeah. Well, and you know, like there's, there's that saying that like you're always fighting the last war. Like right. I, I apologize to John Syracuse for probably butchering that, but I, when I, when I was running Instapaper, 
it was never free during the time I ran it. I, I it was paid up front the whole time, right. and I I was really you know adamant about that. I had to had to be paid up front because that's how you have to make revenue, and that was okay for the first couple of years of the app store, but then every competitor I got from that point forward, they were all free. Right, like every every major competitor was free. And I would, and then Apple made reading list, which was free, of course, because it's built in. And it, it's just like I really was marginalized by to a large degree by all of my competitors being free, and and by the platform having this thing for free, and by my app having a, a big paywall in front of it before anybody could even try it. Uh, right. And so that's one of the reasons why. And I was I was also I was always afraid that a new competitor would come out that would be awesome and free. Because I, I didn't have that for a long time. Uh, and and so, like, it was like every morning I would wake up afraid to look at the news on my phone because what if today was the day my business was crushed by a new <laughs> awesome free competitor? And so with Overcast, I launched it free in, in part out of that because I was just like, you know what? I don't want to leave. I don't want to leave that gap for anybody. Yeah. Like I don't want to. I don't want to wake up every morning with that fear. Well, you also and had so, the, you had the advantage though, and I I mean it that it's an advantage that Apple already had its podcast app. Exactly, I was pre Sherlocked, right. and so like I yeah, so it was, it, and that was a a big reason why I was free because you know a I didn't want to leave you know what Apple calls a price umbrella for for you know competitors to to beat me only on price like if you want to beat me on quality fine I, i'll play that game I, I will happily fight on that on that battlefront uh but i didn't want price to be the only thing people could compete with me or, or I, i'd rather I, I didn't want to be losing a lot of customers to someone else because of price i think you had an, I, I always was with instapaper and yeah. and it, it killed me and so and, and I, I was at the time i was, I was not a good enough business person in this regard to recognize at the time that I should have gone free and figure out something else back then. But you know, in the meantime, I kind of figured that out. And so that's why I launched with yeah. this. I think you had an advantage that podcast Apple's podcast app isn't all, it always has been pretty good and it's free and it's there and it's got the iTunes store backing it. And the fact that it's Apple's app, does it come with the phones or do you have to get it from the app store? I forget if oh, it's, it's a, they go back and forth on that. Like every few releases, um, I, for, I forget what it is now. But the I, fact, I think it's separate. The fact that it's pretty good and very popular is a much better situation. I, I, I feel like we at Vesper, we were, we had a, it was a disservice to us that at that time, Apple notes was garbage. It was like right. it was a really bad app with really bad sync. The only way to get sync was through IMAP. That was a mess. <laughs> God bless him for having made it work, but it just didn't work well. Um, and it worked terrible if your email was Gmail because G- you'd get copies of messages over and over again. It was terrible. Um, the I think it was starting with iOS nine. I think it was two years ago where they yeah, re- like redid that. notes and they build it on CloudKit and it's it's super good. It's a really great it's a great notes app and it's really great sync. The sync is terrific. Yeah. Um, it would have been better if that was already out because it would have calibrated our expectations. Like it wasn't like we assumed Apple would never improve notes, but we didn't know what it would be. You know, and it yeah, exactly. Um, so right now you're what you do you get it for free. And for free, you show ads. And you started this, when did you start? September. So just in September. And you were using Google's mobile ad services. And if you want to, if you want to get rid of the ads and you want to support the app, you can subscribe for 10 bucks a year. Mm -hmm. And it's auto-recurring or no? It just reminds you in a year. 
Now it's recurring because okay. now we get a raise after year one if we do recurring. So right, because you get yeah, right. So anybody who's with you for more than a year, if it's recurring, you get an eighty-five fifteen split. Exactly. Right, which is a big deal. Um, yeah, that it like because like thirty percent is a lot, and having that cut from from thirty to fifteen after a year that adds up a lot as well. Well, it means you it's make basically more, like it, you make a it's 15, getting a raise. You get a fifteen percent raise from your existing users. It's actually exactly. kind of putting the old upgrade model the other way around where you would get less money from your longtime users because they're only paying the upgrade price. Now you're getting more, even though they don't pay more. This right, is like actu- now I have, I have a strong incentive now right. to keep people subscribed long-term. This is one of those areas where it really is Apple. Uh, uh, everybody's interests align. It's not necessarily that Apple is putting developers ahead of Apple itself because Apple still makes money, but the the motivation is they're 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 putting motivation out there to build apps and services that are worth keeping a multi year subscription to. Yeah, and that's in their interests in terms of uh, not maximizing their revenue from the app store at any given transaction or any given renewal, but in terms of making the platform more popular and getting, you know, which leads to people doing things like buying crazy new $1,100 iPhones. <laughs> uh, and it's great for users because the user doesn't pay more. I pay the same 10 bucks on my renewal for Overcast and you just get more of the money. You get $8.50 instead of $7. Yeah, and and a long time ago, like like when I when I launched um, the magazine, it was it was a newsstand app, and newsstand was the first thing to have these auto renewing subscriptions, and this was back in i in iOS five and six, and it, the at the time I wrote this big blog post basically saying like auto renewing subscriptions are terrible, and I would never do them again, um, and I wouldn't if they were the same. But they're a lot better now. Like everything about them now, they still have a lot of shortcomings. But everything about them now is a lot easier to implement and easier for both developers and customers to deal with than it was in iOS five. And so, like now, it's it is again. There are still limits. Um, in particular, it's like you still can't tell if somebody has has uh, told their subscription not to renew. So effectively, if they've canceled, hmm. you have you don't know until it expires. Hmm. Like you, you know the date that it's supposed to renew, but until that date comes and it doesn't renew, you don't know they've canceled it. And so there's weird things with like if you want to uh, also sell subscriptions through your website, maybe, and it, like offer both payment options. It's really hard to to reconcile these things because like you don't know if the person has canceled on their phone if they are extending. So it's it, there's a whole bunch of weird edge cases. But uh, the way I'm doing it now, which is very simple, and there is no web payment option, w- along with the um, the improvements they've done to the system since iOS 5, make it a much easier sell now. And and then add the raise to it, and it's a no-brainer. Yeah. Um, and it was starting now with version 3.0. You've, you've switched the... You, you've seemed to have narrowed in on this $10 a year recurring subscription for the pro, you know, what do you call it? iPhone or uh, overcast? Pro uh, I call it premium premium. Yeah. Well, all right. You can call it that. Um, yeah, I was kind of like going off of like, you know, like what streaming music services call their yeah. ad free tiers. Yeah. Which pro- are almost all premium. I guess it semantically, it makes sense. Pros shorter. <laughs> and, I, and pro is kind of a, it's kind of yeah. weird to call something pro that adds almost no features. Right. Like it's like, what like, so premium, like it, there was basically like, you know, I'm kind of going off of like, what people are accustomed to here, and and streaming streaming music services are way more popular than Overcast. So, like, if if they're all saying their ad free tiers are called premium, and if I call mine that, I think people basically get it. Yeah. 
But the big change is on the ad side, where instead of using Google's mobile ad services, you've dropped it for your own homegrown system where you're going to sell or you are selling ads that, you know, you sell the ads and they get shown um, with the novel idea, but which is very obvious. And it kind of gets into my thing when I was talking about Audible before that, hey, guess why Audible advertises uh on a podcast because they know everybody who listens to it is listening to spoken word content. Right. And so one of your ideas is that podcasts can buy these ads to promote their podcast. So I, I could buy ads for the talk show and mm -hmm. people would be listening to other shows. And if they're free users of overcast, I get a little ad at the bottom and I can try to pitch them on listening. And if they tap it, it, doesn't like take them to my website or something. It does something far smarter than that. It takes you to the page, you know, not the page, but the the card in Overcast where you would be able to either subscribe to my show or listen to the latest episode to see what it's like. Yeah, you browse the whole episode list, the whole history of the show, and everything. You know, it's exactly what you, what you get from the ad podcast screen. You right. know, it's the same thing. Um, yeah, I mean, it's th this was kind of. I mean, I, I've kind of like fallen into all my business models for overcast here <laughs> i don't, I don't know, know if it, it's going to work i mean you never know you have to try them and and you know like my rss feed sponsorships have worked way better than i thought they would or than i even hoped they would um but i'm sure glad i tried it because it worked a lot better than i than i thought it would um and who knows and maybe it will maybe it won't but it it at least fits the basic description of advertising that is sustainable and works in my experience. And it isn't just a flash in the pan, which is that it's got to be that sort of win-win-win scenario where it's a good value for the advertiser. It's not super annoying to the user and it makes money for the person selling the ad. And it kind of has that. And, and part of the way that you get that to work is to not try to make ads that are exactly like the ads for a previous medium or, you know, to reuse the analogy, fighting the previous war. But what, yeah. what is native for this? And, you know, like I, I've given talks about it, but like in the early days when people would try to monetize RSS, they would have two ad strategies. The big one that was super common for a long time was that you wouldn't put the full article in the RSS feed. So you didn't have to put ads in and anybody who wanted, you'd, you'd get a list of articles. And if you wanted to read one, you'd get like a two sentence summary and then you'd double click it and go to the website and then you'd see the website ads. Um, well, that work, you know, it works in terms of not giving away your content for free. But it wasn't what people who used RSS readers want to do. They 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 were using RSS readers because they wanted to read your stuff in the RSS reader. Yeah, so they basically then, ruined the feed. Right, and so the next thing people would try to do is they would put banner ads in the each article, which made them like little web pages, and they paid like pennies, and everybody just skipped over them. Um, and so my idea was, well, why not just have a paid entry in the feed, like once a week? Make give them the whole entry. Don't put something in the entries. Just sell an entry, uh, and it has worked out very, very well. And I think selling a podcast. I think if if your idea works, I think actually having the podcast sell, um, buy other podcasts buying the ads is going to work. And one of the things that it, it occurred to me is, what do you see a lot when you watch regular commercial TV? What do you see a lot of commercials for? <laughs> TV show. TV shows. Yeah. <laughs> Right? And it's not because the network couldn't sell the spot and, oh, well, we'll, we'll put an ad for uh, Modern Family during, uh, you know, the the football game because we don't we didn't sell the spot. They do it because they know it's super valuable to get people to watch the show. 
like I can't even tell you how many times during the Super Bowl they told you how many uh, uh, I forget what the show was, but it shows how well the ads worked. But but they kept telling you what sh- <laughs> what show was going to be on right after the Super Bowl. Yeah, it was like the new Twenty Four reboot or something like that. Um, over and over and over again because it works because you're already watching TV, right? Exactly. <laughs> you're and, listening and, yeah. to a podcast. Yeah, and so like that's like I think this the only question in my mind basically is like. Do enough podcasters have enough money to want to pay for ads? Right. That and, and that's a big question mark. And that's why and like this isn't just podcasters. Like I also have like a hover ad and a Squarespace ad and a Linode right. ad in my like i I can advertise for like, I I put the whole thing to be fairly generic, so I can advertise for podcasts or just any website or apps in the app store. Um so any of those things can be advertised with these with these ad units, and and I can control it all server side, so I can you know dynamically insert them as necessary. Um, I just it, it it remains to be seen like whether podcasters actually will buy these at the prices that they end up being worth or not. What, uh, what perc- I don't that's I don't know what percentage. I mean, right now your your revenue is overwhelmingly from the premium subscribers. Correct. Yeah, and that's and like and basically what what allowed me the freedom to even try this at all is that what I found since September, uh, since using the the Google Ads, um, the the Google Ads in apps, and I, think, I mean this is true of of any you know in app advertising basically, um, how much it works for you is extremely dependent on your click through rate. You know, like basically how many clicks do you get per you know thousand impressions of the ad uh, as it's shown, and my click through rate in the Google ads was awful. It was, it was so far below like industry averages and everything. It was terrible. And who wants to jump out to a web browser? That's certainly part of it. I mean, and another part of it is and just how many like, people, how many people think if they tap it and it goes to a web browser that the podcast is going to stop playing? It didn't because overcast true, yeah. can run in the background, but how many people wouldn't even would, it may even be vaguely interested, but wouldn't tap it out of fear that the podcast would stop playing, which would be like the worst thing ever. Yeah. I never thought about that. But yeah, so basically, like there was there was that big problem of like, you know, I, my tap through rate was terrible, and 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 also just you know things that advertise in these kind of like bulk ad networks on mobile, it, they weren't often very high quality ads. Right. So th- the result of this was was both that they look kind of junky, and also they made very little money. And so, and and the the only reason that this has succeeded as a business model at all is because having the ads there made a lot more people subscribe as premium members than the previous system, which was basically like subscribe if you like me. It was like kind of like you know voluntary patronage thing. Right. That got very few people to subscribe, and so having the ads there. You know, I thought it would be a nice balance of like, all right, I'll make a lot of money from ads and some money from subscriptions. And it ends up I made more money from subscriptions than I thought and way less money from ads than I expected. Mm-hmm. So there, there, the advantage there, though, the, the silver lining there is that I could replace the ads with basically any other ads. Like, it doesn't really matter whatever I replace them with, as long as it brings in some money. It can I can come out basically uh, you know uh, the same or ahead at, from the little bit I was making from Google just because as I said like my my tap rate was terrible right. from those ads and, and doesn't and so doesn't make you hang your head in shame at the quality of the ads as long as exactly it's, you had a good and, point I mean, and I I only have like about twenty four hours worth of numbers so far but my tap rate on the new ads is something like 
uh, I think it's like a hundred times better than it was. <laughs> it's it's some obscene multiplier. And again, I only have twenty four hours of data, and everyone's trying them out to see what they are. So right. you know, this is not representative of long term trends. But uh, I'm confident so far that I, I think I hit something better this time. Um, <laughs> I. I I I think it's going to work. I, I think it's a good idea, but it's it's definitely better than the old ads. No, I mean no my only question it. really is like you know in six months, it, are most of the ads that you see in Overcast going to be for websites like Hover and Squarespace? Or are they going to be for podcasts? Yeah, and I, I, I have no idea. Yeah, but it's good to keep an open mind and let it sort out. Exactly. As, as it falls. Water seeks its own level. I think this is one of those things too where you underestimate your personal skill set in terms of your. Uh, I mean, you know, the main part of Overcast is, a, you know, it's an iOS app and it's programming, you know, and you've done, we talked, you know, extensively already about the, all the UI stuff that you've done and changed and customized and and customizing the table view and all this stuff that's just pure, this is what iOS developers of, of good apps do. But your background as a CMS developer lets, gives you like such a leg up in terms of, oh, I'll just build my own ad network. And you, uh, <laughs> you know, because you did this before, where you built the system that you we use. Uh, I use it. You ATP uses it um, to to just set up the the schedule of podcast ads. You know, which ads are in which episode, and what do you say? Uh, it was it was just something you built out of the frustration of like whatever jury rigged system. I don't even remember what we did before, but I, I used a terrible Excel spreadsheet before. I think that most people have some kind of like awful combination you know of what? spreadsheets. I, and I had stuff. a number. Yeah, it was a number spreadsheet. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was just awful. Um, and it, it, you know, so like your ability to to have this second skill set where you can build the back end of a, a dynamic on the fly, you know, up to the minute ad thing is a huge advantage of being able to think of something like this. Cause I can see a lot of people might come up with this idea, but then like they will wait, how would I actually, how would I actually manage the ads on the back end so that they get served? And maybe that would, would never percolate up to the level where they do it because they don't have that skill set. Well, I mean, it's, it... I wouldn't necessarily say they don't that it's it's much of a skill set. Honestly, it, it's more of like a a uh, a willingness, or it's more of a confidence to do it because like so many so many app developers don't have a lot of server side experience, and so like you know they, they have experience developing like the local native app, but you know, maybe not necessarily the server side shops, or they don't want to run the server themselves or have to depend on a server. And and I just whatever like. Whatever it is that that intimidates people or turns people off about running servers, I don't have that because right. my job, you know, before making apps, my job was all about running servers and running applications on servers, and so I just became comfortable with that. Um, running servers and running apps on servers and writing backend code is actually way easier than writing app code in so many ways. It's it, uh, you know, sorry, backend developers, I know I'm I'm one of you sometimes, but I'm telling you, it's so much easier most of the time than writing at most app code. That, that you have to do to make a, a, a reasonable quality app. Uh, and, and so it isn't that most developers can't do this, it's that most of them think they can't do right. this, and so they don't even try. Um, the, the main challenge for me, uh, trying to do all this ad stuff, is that I just find it incredibly uninteresting. Like, uh, the, the idea, like, I, I actually really got a lot of enjoyment out of designing the ad format and integrating it into the app and making that work really nicely. But doing the back end of, like, 
putting in the ads and tracking how many clicks they get like that. I could not be less interested in doing that. I put it off forever. <laughs> well, you did it. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. Um, I, I literally did it like three days ago. <laughs> uh, the other little details I have are some of the, uh, the changes like you call it a DIOS sevenification. So one of the, the good things about the timing of Overcast is it debuted with iOS 7, so it never had to go through that shift from the old world of iOS 6 to iOS 7 visually and, and you know, in terms of the, the way that you code an app and assume, you know, stuff. It, it went through the shift, just right. no one saw it except me. Right. <laughs> um, and it is interesting. Like it's, it's, I was never an iOS 7 hater, but iOS 7 definitely debuted at the extreme end of the direction that it went, which I think is the way that you go. I think it's the right way to, I think it was right for Apple to go push it as far as they could with the thin fonts and the translucency everywhere. Um, but they've dialed it back a lot of ways, each step iOS 8 to 9 to 10. Um, and a lot of the changes you made in Overcast 3 really bring them to the forefront because there were some things that have been there in Overcast since 1.0 that are now gone, but that w didn't disappear until now, like the popover that you would get for the info on a podcast, which you said you hated from the beginning. <laughs> I did. I, I hated those popovers. Uh, and included in the use of popovers was translucency. Mm -hmm. Like iOS 7 introduced an awful lot of things that were like a, a semi-translucent piece of glass or like it's like the popover that I'm talking about looked like it was printed on like frosted glass. So you could like see that like in a shower, you can see that there's somebody in the shower, but you can't see what they look like. Yeah. Like uh, a lot of use of blur, but because what happened was like at the time that iOS seven came out, um, whatever combination of hardware and, and software tricks, Blur is computationally intensive, mm -hmm. and so they they basically couldn't do it before. And on on that year's, I think it was twenty thirteen uh, that came came out. Uh, on that year of iPhones, uh, they were finally powerful enough to really do it, and they and they came up with a couple of neat software tricks to to do it a little bit faster. And so it was like they had this new technical ability that that was pretty rare before, especially and, and was not seen at all on mobile because it was too complex to do on mobile hardware. And so they went nuts with it. It was like, you know, typical, you know, when you get a new tech ability, right. you first go nuts with it and then you dial it back. And, and they certainly did. Um, but I think what, it, what this update really focuses is where we, we still use Blur. Apple still uses Blur extensively in iOS 10. But instead of being like this foreground panel that's in the front and that you see through, it's the background that gets blurred. So, for example, when you yeah. do the force touch on, a, on an episode to, you know, peak peek at it it the panel is not translucent but the background around it is which is in it, it's a subtle difference but i think it works much better because it, yeah it doesn't make the thing you're looking at hard to read but it gives you this immediate context of oh this is temporary this is just a little you know because it's all blurry in the background i've popped this thing up yeah, because like, you know the other thing about blur is like it's actually it's it, besides being computationally difficult, it's also very hard to design around. Yes, you know, like like when you when you have these blurry <laughs> foreground panes and these like large blurry expanses, and then you have like you know behind them you have like some like bright pink icon shining through, and you have this like pink 
blob in the in the blur area. It's very hard to design around that and to make that both legible and attractive uh, in all situations. It's it's nearly impossible. Hmm. Um, and then the other difference that's definitely moving directly away from iOS 7 is slightly thicker lines, you know, like mm-hmm. icons and stuff like that, like the sharing icon and stuff. It's not everything isn't so wispy anymore. It's a little, you know, I wouldn't say it's thick lines, but they're they're much more like regular lines. Oh, you should have seen the conversation between me and Louis Mantia. I I designed the the entire rest of the app myself, and then I I went to him because he he made the original icon. So I went to him to to refresh the icon, <laughs> and uh, and I showed him the screenshot of of the toolbar on the main screen that has those four icons across the top, and he's like, "What are you doing with the stroke width?" <laughs> because the you know the 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 lines in on all the icons and everything in, in all previous versions were one point wide, which is you know two pixels right. on the on the two x phones and then three pixels or six yeah, yeah. three pixels on on the, anyway um so one point was what we had before. I wanted to make everything a little bit thicker two points uh in most things looked too thick, so the actual stroke width of most of the icons in overcast is 1.5 points. And this makes everything suck. This like this makes everything about icon design harder because you can either have it blurry on all devices or you can align things to quarter point boundaries and have it work. So that's what I did. And when I tried to make another designer do that, I got some pushback. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually, we worked it out. But that the the result is that uh, almost all the icons in Overcast three have a one point five point stroke width, and it works and so it, it looks sharp. And <laughs> so is that going to work out well on the three X iPhone ten? So that's Pro? that's a question. So uh, basically, the way it works, the way I've aligned them on these quarter pixel boundaries, uh, it 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 is sharp on two X. On three X, it is a little bit less sharp. But there are so many pixels. I'm kind of thinking you might not notice. Yeah, because I don't. I don't. I don't notice on the Plus phones now. Right. Hmm. We'll have to see. Anyway, I think it's good yeah. work. <laughs> Any, anything else you wanted to talk about? I don't think so. I mean, we've only been going for two and a half hours. I mean, we we still have three more to go. No, right? that's short for us. We got to wrap yeah, it up. It really, this really is short for us. Uh, uh, how'd the release go? You had that one bug you had to fix. So you had to have one emergency bug in it but it seems like that got through did you have to do an expedited review no i they it was just fast yeah like, it was just that fast um so yeah i actually i actually fixed uh here let me pull it up I, I fixed 13 like kind of important day one bugs um one of the things you know people i had a couple people on twitter saying like why didn't you beta test this more with a bigger group your beta group sucked and and the the the, the, the reason why literally is secrecy like yeah. that's it. It's a boring reason, and but that's true. Like I have done bigger betas before. I've done betas where I've tried to fill like all one thousand of my test flight slots, and I came pretty close. And I had like eight hundred people on one of them, and and I've done like kind of medium sized ones where it's where it's like one hundred and fifty people, and and this one was something like forty or fifty people. And and the reason why I kept it small uh, is because every previous beta I've done, I've said in the instructions. Please don't share screenshots of this with anybody. Please don't show this to people who aren't on the beta. Like, please try to keep this under wraps. And every single time, it's been bigger than my group of, of like friends that I did this beta with. People leak it. 
because and it's not that they're trying to be devious they just don't read the directions um and they think it's okay or they want to show it off or whatever else so I just didn't want that. Like there was, there was enough new stuff in this visually that I did not want anybody sharing a screenshot before I unveiled it to the world. And you know, it, 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 whether you think that's a valid excuse or not, that was the reason. And uh, and and I knew I could trust this group of people to to be attentive to that and to be trustworthy of that. So I tested it just with t- with trusted friends, yeah. and, and I found the the number of bugs that you find with larger groups of people actually isn't that much more. I don't think like, so either. That's my, it really my experience. I think the only way you could do it is do a public beta and then you'll, you will shake out more bugs in the aggregate, but then you're, you're completely blowing any kind of secrecy because it's a public beta. Yeah, exactly. And, and you kind of can't do that on iOS. Like that's, that, that is kind of what I simulated with my like test flight invitation form and with that, with those previous tests. But, but uh, it's, yeah, it, it's, it's it basically is like now I would do it for a bug fix update because now like there's nothing secret for the next few releases. The next few releases are going to be bug fixes and minor feature additions. So like I would consider doing it now, but now it's not necessary anymore. I, I really have found that keeping the beta small is the way to go. So anyway, we had about fixed s- a couple of bugs. We had, a, we had and, about sixty with Vesper, and our rule was I'm looking at the list right now because we put them yeah. in the credits. I would say out of the sixty, at least forty of them are people who I would give my wallet to. <laughs> and, and our general, but that was like our general rule. And then and the other twenty are ones that either Brent or or Dave would vouch for, you know. But the rule was, if you wanted somebody on the beta, you'd have to be someone that you would verify you'd trust with your wallet. Yeah, exactly. And and again, like the, you know, the the benefit of having a lot more people on that than that on a beta is is fairly small uh, and severely diminishing returns. So uh, yeah, it was fine. So anyway. I, uh, I fixed all those bugs in a release that went through today. I created one also major bug during that release, uh, which <laughs> is that now you can't create new playlists anymore. Uh, so I have to fix that. Uh, but <laughs> otherwise, uh, besides those those things, it's actually been great. You know, the servers haven't collapsed or anything. Uh, you know, everything's pretty stable there. So uh, yeah, so far so good. I uncovered that bug while we were talking about this earlier, and I, d- I didn't want to tell you. <laughs> I didn't want to create playlist it. bug. Yeah. There's yeah. no, there's no, there's no save button. Yeah, that's that's a tough one. Yep. That's all right. I that's like all the, right. I'll, probably by the, I, I, probably by the time that you actually publish this episode, it, it might even be fixed. That's probably I'm probably going to have to issue an update tomorrow yeah. to fix that one and hope it gets through app review somewhat quickly. I, I feel kind of, I feel kind of guilty putting through like something in app review two days in a row, but. I I, th- I feel like they've got the wheels to turn it over there where that's not you shouldn't feel guilty. It seems like they've just got you know they've really up up the capacity. I mean I I've heard so, from yeah. a couple like, of it's like I'm not requesting fast reviews. Like they right. just happen to be going through quickly. Yeah, yeah. I think especially if you don't request an expedited review, just just fix it however often you want. Yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like I, I I'd be like put on some like bad list if no, I, I don't submit think they like do that every anymore. day for a while. I don't know. Maybe if it kept up for a very long time. But even yeah. then, it might be more like, let's make sure this guy doesn't do anything suspicious. Yeah, that's true. Uh, well, Marco, thank you for your time. Uh, thank you. Everybody can uh, listen to your the dulcet tones of your voice on a, on a very regular weekly basis at uh, atp.fm, which is literally my favorite podcast. Um, thank you. I, see, I do notice, though, you cheat, and it sorts to the top of the list in, in Overcast. <laughs> You would not believe how many people <laughs> think that. Well, I mean, it's, it's not a lot of people. Who think that I, ATP I do, is first because it's the chairs? I I do you, I do get the occasional angry email or one star App Store review 
from people who think that the entire reason I made Overcast was to promote my own podcast uh, and that that's why it shows up in the most recommended list sometimes. <laughs> that I've hard-coded it to appear there. Oh, did I tell you I'm changing the name of my show? Triple <laughs> A talk show? <laughs> like the Yellow Pages? Triple <laughs> A talk show. A yeah. talk show. Exactly. Oh, I wanted I, that reminds me. That's amazing that you said that. I want I have I have some follow up from like an episode ten weeks ago on ATP. You were conf- <laughs> of course. You were conf- you were confused about uh, minor league baseball and why single A and double A. Yes, triple A. Uh, it's just more A's are better. And so, why aren't the major leagues quadruple A? They are in concept. It's you could think of them as as uh, my, my my whole question was like why is AAA like the top tier in video game budget terms right but like this kind of minor league thing in baseball yeah I think that it's a different I think that I, I don't know that's actually a good question on the video games I suspect that the AAA for video games has absolutely nothing to do with baseball that it doesn't come from baseball that it's some other um, some other route so are there single A and double A teams yes. There's single A, uh, which is really regional, and then double A is a little bit bigger. Triple A is 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 elite. It's people. Most of the people on a triple A team are the uh, expected, or at least have the potential to play major league baseball. And then you can think of major league baseball as quadruple A baseball, but they, nobody calls it that. Nobody ever would because it's not minor okay. league. What are the Columbus Clippers? I have no idea. And there's oh, also it says Triple A. There's also Triple A affiliated the Cleveland Indians. There's also okay. uh, independent leagues, which are so. Uh, I believe it's the case. I could be wrong, but I believe it's the case that every single A, Double A, and Triple A team is affiliated with a major league team. So, like the Yankees right. own a Triple A team and a Double A team and an A team. But then there's independent leagues which aren't affiliated with a major league team. Um, I think right over the river here in Philly, the Trenton, uh, whatever they're called, Land Sharks or Rat Sharks or whatever the hell they're called, are un- unaffiliated. The Rat Sharks, that's it, yeah. Yeah, they're an independent team, and so they're not affiliated with a major league team. So, but they, 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 some of them are like single A, and some of them are even like double A. They say, but for the most part, they're they're just players who are having trouble getting picked up by a major league team. But anyway, I figured I'd explain that to you. Thanks. Yeah, actually, I didn't realize that that like they weren't just all AAA. No, like I'm seeing now, like like the the only two teams I know of are the Columbus Clippers because that's that was my team growing up in Columbus. Like we'd go there like on school field trips because it, it costs nothing, and they actually are AAA apparently. Yeah, uh, associated with the uh, Indians. And then now that I'm in New York, the nearest team I think of this of this caliber is the Long Island Ducks, uh, which are apparently independent. They're in the uh, the Liberty Division of the Atlantic League of Professional Baseball, which is not affiliated with the MLB. Right, so, so they, that's they appear to have no A's. No, uh, they don't have any A's. No A baseball team. Uh, it's not Trenton. It's Camden. It's the Camden River Sharks. Hey, you were close. Yeah. Yeah, the Trenton Rat Sharks. Close enough. Yeah. Yeah, for the tr- so, like, what I love about these games, like, because like, I don't, you know, I I wish I cared about sports. I really do, uh, and because I, I I like I know the rules of all the games. I just don't care about the teams, and so I don't get into it. But like I, I like the experience of seeing a game in person with friends who care about it. Like that's a that's a nice thing to do. And so I love AAA baseball because you can go to these stadiums with basically no advance notice whatsoever. You can get amazing seats for almost no money. 
Yeah. And you can go have a really good time and you can watch a game with great seats and everything. And, and you know, the food is not exorbitant, uh, relatively speaking. And, you know, you, you could just have a really nice time and it's much less of an ordeal and much less expensive and much better quality of, like, you know, your seats and everything compared to a major league game. As long as you don't care about teams, which I don't. So it's perfect. Uh yeah, the Camden River Sharks. I've gone to see them a couple of times with Jonas, and you can go in for like three bucks and sit yeah. in the front row. And then you can, and it's even cooler if the kids are, you know, like at a younger age. Uh, you know, like when Jonas was playing Little League when he was a little younger, because then it's like after the game, you can get autographs from the players and stuff like that. And, you know, it seems super cool. It's like, holy cow, this guy was out there playing professional baseball 15 minutes ago. Now he's signing my hat. You can't get that in a major league. Here's a, here's a Quora answer Why are big budget games called AAA? This seems this seems pretty credible. I mean, the core is always the best. <laughs> uh, way back in the old days, games in old days, studios had A, B, and C titles in the catalog. A games were made in house with your developers, and they were your main products. The B titles were either add on content for your A titles or new but slightly more humble games created by third party developers that you uh, would specify. And then C titles were the older classic SKUs now reduced to a value price or small games people brought in in a nearly finished state to be published, even uh, non-game add-ons like screensavers and stuff like that. And of course, the industry is full of hyperbole and bluster, so everything was new, was bigger and better. And so the biggest A titles eventually began to be described as double A to emphasize, or A+, to emphasize that they were even better than A games. Uh, and it wasn't long until the AAA moniker arrived. Just like the number of blades in disposable razors, watch for f- 5A games <laughs> coming soon. That's I, a pretty good answer. Yeah, I find that to be a very good answer. A, B, and C, and then it went to AA just to, to plus it up a little bit. That's probably how minor league baseball got it, too. Probably used to be the same thing, and then they you know, have like a better team, and they'd say that. I will leave that as your homework this week to research that. All right. Thank you, Marco. <laughs> Thank you.